0: hey everybody welcome to this film could be your life bit of a similar situation to the last episode unfortunately we did have some audio issues in this recording uh, this time though they do get resolved during the episode so the first 30 minutes is a little bit rough and after that i promise things improve sorry again about that starting next episode things are back on track without any more issues with that enjoy the episode Hey everybody, welcome on this episode of This Film Could Be Your Life. We're going to be discussing Boogie Nights, a 1997 Paul Thomas Anderson film. We do recommend you watch the movie ahead of time. Uh, Just probably makes the discussion a lot more fun. So John, what is Boogie Nights about? Well, Mike, Boogie Nights is the defining event of our generation, the anthem of the millennials. It features a blind nostalgia for times long past, a carefree attitude, an endearing silliness, and a creeping personal disassociation in Buggy Nights owing to drugs and for millennials owing to economic, political, social, and climatological unrest. Paul Thomas Anderson truly captured our generation's mood of 2021. Carefree, willing to embrace the new world, rapidly approaching darkness, losing our sanity. Buggy Nights was the moment Paul Thomas Anderson cemented his place as the visionary filmmaker of our time. Yeah, that checks out. Okay, great. I just—it's uh, good to know. It's good to know. Yeah, 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 uh, yeah. Welcome to, welcome to this film could be your life. Hey guys, welcome once again to This Film Can Be Your Life, a movie podcast where two friends take the movies that they love way too seriously. Uh, My name is Jonathan Devine. I'm joined as always by Mike Overstreet. Hello. And yeah, this week we are talking about Boogie Nights. Boogie Nights is the 1997, uh, not debut, I got that wrong, I think maybe in the last episode, but the second feature film by Paul Thomas Anderson. Uh, after Hard Eight, which I haven't seen. Have you seen, by the way?
1: Yeah, it's good.
0: Okay. Should I watch it? Yeah,
1: absolutely. Do you like poker movies or gambling movies? Yeah, actually, I I do. I didn't didn't even know that's
0: what it was about. Yeah. Cool, I'm in. At any rate, uh, Boogie Nights is set in Los Angeles' San Fernando Valley and focuses on a young nightclub dishwasher who becomes a popular star of pornographic films, (laughs) chronicling his rise in the golden age of porn of the 1970s through to his fall during the excesses of the 1980s. Um, so, Mike, this will come up a lot as we're going to talk about this movie, but the that premise, that one subject from Wikipedia, uh, is very... Well, first of all, it's very bold. This is his second movie, and that's a... I think everyone's going to turn their heads at that premise. If you haven't seen the movie, when you hear that summary, it's like, what is this movie about? Um Mike, we both come from relatively conservative backgrounds, uh, so to start off discussing the movie, we we start by talking about our history with the movie. I'm wondering, do you remember what you thought about this movie just from hearing the premise? Were you, were you confused? Were you like, you know, were you like worried? Were, I don't know. Do you, do you do you remember that? And then you can go from there, talking about just your kind of your history with the movie.
1: Well, yeah, I, so I don't, because this movie got shown to me by a friend in college who was like, you have to see this movie, and I, I think I went in almost blind, actually, from what I recall actually, about that sounds it. sounds great. Yeah, 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 yeah. I,
0: I, I did not do that, but yeah, that, that maybe is a good way to watch it, I don't know.
1: Yeah, it was kind of my obligatory... Um, Post there will be blood, blowing my mind like Paul Thomas Anderson run where I was just like, yeah. oh, f- this guy's amazing. I-, I need to see everything he's ever made. And then I had a friend who's like, well, you should start with Boogie Nights, and just threw it on, and oh my god, uh, did not did not see it coming. um Bold is the right choice. I mean, I'm sure we will talk about its connection and its homage to Goodfellas, but like the idea that someone took Goodfellas and was like, what if we made this about the '70s porn industry? Is just as <laughs> radical of a choice as you could make um, as a director. Yep. So yeah, uh, that that's my my brief take on kind of my first response to the movie and also how I came across it. It's bonkers, and that yeah. synopsis is accurate. So <laughs> there
0: you go. <laughs> <laughs> so what more is there to say? What about so so you saw and you were kind of been in going into your history with the movie? Like what what's been your so you saw it in college. It's been a few years. How have you related to this movie, I guess? Or what's been your relationship with it?
1: Um, well, it is really interesting as it fits into PTA's, you know, kind of bibliography of sorts. Because um, I saw, it was. Let me think about this. It was the second movie by him I saw. Um, mm-hmm. And so it was almost like a weird middle child after I first saw it, because I saw There Be Blood, which I think is. Legitimately, the best movie ever made, and then you've I, never
0: mentioned it before, so I know. it's such a surprise. I know day. it's yeah. it's
1: people who know me are like, wait, what? Um, <laughs> I evangelized there'd <laughs> be blood more than any movie ever made, um, but yeah. So I, I I saw this masterpiece, what I consider to be, you know, easily one of the top five films of all time, and then I went on a run of his movies, and so saw Boogie Nights, and then I saw um, Magnolia saw heart eight and uh, all the way through phantom thread and stuff like that so in a sense it got like it was in the shadow of there will be blood and then it got kind of swallowed up in that run it kind of got grouped into just these other movies that pta has made that i really enjoy and i think if you had asked me before this most recent rewatch what do you think about it i'd be like oh i love that movie and i think after this most recent time seeing it you know, it is close to the level of There We Blood. It is, a, I mean, it's a top 10 movie for me of the past 25 years. And that's my estimation yeah. of it. I think this might be, in terms of craft, the best movie we've done on this podcast.
0: Yeah, uh, I, I feel very similarly. Um, actually, you know, Mike and I obviously will text a little bit and talk about the movie ahead of time. And um, I don't remember if it was on the last episode or not, but I, I said something in the effect of, it might be his best movie, which feels crazy if you think about his his filmography. That how many amazing films were to come later? Because again, this is second movie, and you said that's actually not that crazy of a take, which in and of itself is is insane. Yeah, that yeah. His, his second feature film. It's it, You know what I was thinking of? It reminds me a little bit of Jaws in that sense. I promise it's not a bit oh, to, to get Jaws in here. I promise it wasn't a bit to get Jaws <laughs> in here. But seriously, think about this. Spielberg has like a you know, what a fifty year career, and he makes some of the greatest movies of all time and some of the most seen movies of all time. But his third movie, his third movie when he's in his twenties, is like arguably the best he ever did. Yeah. Which is just weird to think about. And and that's what that's those the connection here I genuinely didn't think about the bit where I constantly reference Jaws. But but this is a perfect example because yeah pta also though by the way only made eight, has only made eight movies which yeah. when i read that i was like that can't be true and i looked at it i was like oh yeah he's, honestly he's that, not a prolific director
1: that's more than i would have thought if you asked me how many movies has he made um yeah. probably would forget i know i, I like always for, punch, stroke, I forget magnolia yeah
0: yeah i forget magnolia and punch stroke love i also forget um inherent vice yeah cause i never saw it yeah yeah um the other ones, though, so, so yeah, so again, going in my history, I actually very similarly, uh, which, you know, whenever we do, though, there will be blood, which I don't know, maybe we can the podcast. What will, we, what will we even do after that? What did it work? Whenever we do, there will be Nothing.
1: blood.
0: Nothing. <laughs> whenever we do, there will be blood, this will come out. But, like, you know, that was both, we're about the same age, and that was a very formative year for both of us, I think. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, so I had very much the same experience where I, I was an, aware enough of movie culture that I knew it was a big deal. So I sought it out, watched it, was completely blown away. I'd never seen anything like it at all. Um, and at that point, I'd seen a lot of movies, but just nothing that worked like that movie. And similarly, I, I you know I didn't have a friend. I think I, I just sort of was doing research and was like, uh, okay, you know, okay, yeah. So so the, everyone says. Boogie Nights is un- is incredible, and so I sought that out, and I did have the luxury of reading the premise ahead of time, <laughs> and I was a little bit like, "Excuse me, um, what what is this about?" It I felt very I was I was probably in college at that point, but still felt a little bit like conspiratorial as I was seeking it out to, to watch it. I was like, you know, almost like almost that sensation of like, "Man, allowed to watch this?" Like, you know, which is a ridiculous sentence, but it was it's such a Such a lurid uh, concept, right? The the premise is so
1: like what? Nah, (laughs)
0: nah, (laughs) and and so. But then, of course, I saw it, and and you know, this is going to come up later in the episode as well. But a lot of people, even making the movie, a lot of people's response when they first heard the premise was obviously very skeptical. uh, But almost everyone, in the case of making the movie, when they read the script, was like, "Okay, no, this is incredible." And then if you watch the movie obviously you know it is it's pretty quickly apparent that this is something special and that yeah. this is not a you know it, it's not a particularly uh, obviously it's, it's i don't know i don't even know how to talk about this but it, it's not like totally this is not a pornographic film yeah and that's very key to communicate up front is that the, the topic is sex and pornography but uh, in fact, I, I even wrote down. this is arguably one of the least sexy movies. Ever made. This is so uh, it's so the first half where things are mostly positive. Sex is not really something that is in the context of the movie meant to be arousing in any way or in any way engages you like that. Uh, and then you have the second half of the movie, which sexy, which we're going to get to. We're going to get to that second half. I'm actually going to quote, just because I'm interested in that conversation real quick. I don't know how many thoughts you have on it, but I want to quote Ebert real quick. uh, Ebert obviously gave this movie 4 stars, so it was incredible. At the end of the review, he says this. In examining the business of catering to lust, Boogie Nights demystifies its sex. That's probably one reason it avoided the NC-17 rating. Mainstream movies use sex like porno films do to turn us on. Boogie Nights abandons the illusion that characters are enjoying sex. In a sense, it's about manufacturing a consumer product. Uh, So in a sense, I'm just curious because I think that's one of the... I don't know if we see this as a platform to dissuade people or, or to encourage people one way or the other, but if you have gotten this far without having seen this movie and are like, what is this movie about? I just think that's such an important thing to communicate is that this is not a movie that is actually... In any way, try like like has the same goals of pornography. It is about pornography, but the actual filmmaking is doesn't do that, It actually is pretty nearly the opposite of that. Uh, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that or, or you know, because I I just think it's like one of the most interesting overarching parts about this movie is that again the premise has that effect on people, but it's not what the movie is, is like or what it's about.
1: No, I mean I I, I don't have much to say other than I agree you know it's it's one of those things where one of the most fascinating parts of the film is how deeply how deeply troubling it is that he's essentially tackling very human thoughts again I, I actually I would just throw out Goodfellas again where he's tackling the themes of a movie about violence themes about greed about these very human elements and themes and he's just wrapping it in the industry that is the pornographic industry of this era. So there is this very strange part of the film, which is that I think it is a recurring thing for me where I would just as these actors are engaging each other and having these conversations and whether it's on a set or preparing to go into a shoot, I would almost just forget at times, oh, they're preparing themselves to go shoot a porno, right? It's so yeah. deeply not the vibe. Of some of this stuff that and I think that's obviously intentional where he's trying to really dive into things that have nothing to do with sexuality in fact as a theme um, apart from Dirk Diggler's mom I don't think it really even comes up all that much in terms of the conversation about whether this is um, you know whether pornography in and of itself is moral or good or right or whatever else it's far it sets its sights on far larger conversations that which is again such a bold choice to do that within a film that if you read the synopsis you'd be like oh this is just a porno right Um, yeah and so something else he said it, it definitely has the least amount of sexiness for the amount of times characters say the word sexy of every (laughs) any movie ever like they say that word all the time and i'm constantly just like there's nothing sexy about what's going on
0: right now um or or for the amount of times the characters engage in sex there is a lot of sex in this movie but again in my opinion none of it is in any way uh sexy yeah none of it is in any way like alluring it's all like very commodified and very much not not the point i guess is, is is sort of what we're saying um and I, I do want to mention, too, you, you mentioned offhand as a bold choice. Just to reiterate, too, this is his second movie. Yeah. I, it's, I think this would be very different. Like, if Paul Thomas Anderson made this movie now, where he's one of the most acclaimed living directors, you know, it's the whole thing where everyone's in, and no one probably is batting an eye. But this is his second movie. And that's just. I just don't know if there's other directors who have done that and succeeded so well. I guess Tarantino, maybe, but, like, even then, he stuck in his wheelhouse for a really long time and he his wheelhouse once you bought into that first movie and into Reservoir Dogs he kind of stuck that out yeah even as he was making these bigger and more interesting movies so I just don't know if there's another director like that who so quickly takes this insane risk this like head-turning premise and just runs with it and makes it land so well well
1: on, on that note can we just have the paul thomas anderson conversation um sure so i'm not yeah. just doing the what worked and i just say pta a thousand times um <laughs> because i do think he's the greatest living director and i and I, I i put this to you in a previous conversation we have where i can't think of another director who has two top 10 movies of the last 25 years in their catalog right if i was just yeah. creating a list There might be one other i can't think of it what i can say is pta between boogie nights and there will be blood is definitely on that list and that's unbelievable and i think what it points to is kind of what you're saying which is what makes him so good and so prolific is that few directors can take their style and their level of craft and apply it to so many different genres and wildly different projects so effectively like what makes this yeah. movie amazing is that it came from the same person who made there will be blood, which is such a yeah. startlingly different movie tone. There is no humor really in it other than dark, dry humor. And this movie is so funny and this movie is so slapsticky yeah. at times. And it's so ridiculous and also serious. And, and I can't think of another living director who I have seen make a movie like phantom Thread, a movie like Magnolia, a movie like there will be blood boogie nights they're all good. They're all distinctly his style, and yet they're also radically different in terms of what Absolutely. the film is. And yeah, yeah. he's just he. There is no one like him, at least working right now. Yeah. Um and I totally I, I agree. I could gush about him for hours. So i try not to. <laughs> this
0: is the welcome to the Paul Thomas Anderson yeah. podcast. Honestly, we should just we should just lead into it. Just not not even pretend. Yeah. No, I tend to agree. I, I don't know. I wouldn't necessarily say he's my favorite director working right now, just because he's not the most fun.
1: Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: But I actually I don't I, I can't really disagree. I mean, it is kind of an opinion statement, but yeah, it is. Every time he releases a movie, I know it's going to have an effect on me, but that's about all I know.
1: Yeah, and that's
0: really that's that's huge, right? That's like that. You're right. They he will change huge aspects it's so hard to define what his style is like you can I think that I think that it's, people, his people style than me, is just good
1: it's just, yeah. it's just it's good just,
0: stuff I mean it's, it's just like this really works yeah. but it, they all seem to be working for different reasons and uh, yeah you know and, and just as a real quick to um, the movies I've seen so obviously there will be blood uh, is up there Phantom Threads up there but at some point we'll have to do the master too because mm. I Forgot I think The Master is one of his most overlooked movies. Yeah. Um, it's possibly the most difficult one to watch. Uh, certainly it, it's it's weird to say the least fun, because I, I don't know if you could characterize There Will Be Blood or something like Phantom Thread or you know as, as fun. And Buggy Nights is very fun, but but The Master, I don't know. That movie has this weird like, like hold on me yeah uh it's it's one of his least penetrable films i think it, it's so it, it's so difficult to understand what what exactly is happening thematically but again he lands it yeah and, it, and in my opinion it works like that is it's it's this mystery box of a film and like we've been saying that's different than the other movies oh yeah blood is is complicated but there's actually are these huge thematic resonances that are pretty easy to pick up on i think mm-hmm. um and, and and like we said, Boogie Nice is entertaining and funny and heartbreaking and all this stuff. We're gonna get into it, but but yeah, I, I think you hit the nail on the head. He's he's so eclectic but also consistent, and it's just incredible stuff. And again, this is the second movie we're about to talk about for another you know hour or whatever. So. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah. Uh, well, th- with that, we're gonna take a little break, and we're gonna get into why this movie works. We'll have plenty to say, over it, so stick around. back Uh, so we divide this uh, podcast into a couple different sections we're going to start by talking about why this movie works Uh, we will have probably a lot to say Then we'll go into why this movie doesn't work I'm not sure what we'll say Uh, I I have a couple things cocaine (laughs) cocaine Uh, then we have a section story thoughts and then finally later in the episode we have a few essays and things to talk about but first why this movie works and more so than any other movie we've done, Mike. I just have a lot of notes about the actors. Yep. Um, these are some of the the performances are so important to this movie uh, because the premise is so out there and it's so alienating. I think to so many people that if the if the performances don't land, then I think you're not going to be in the, in the movie at all. Yeah. No one's going to sign up based on the premise. Which, uh, which
1: real quick, I, I said yeah. I wasn't going to just gush about PTA, but he has an almost unmatched ability to to cast actors perfectly. Oh, my God. Um, I actually can't yeah. think of a single movie he's made where I'm like, eh, that should have been cast as someone different. Um, and for, in, for almost any role, in, any role, right? Right? Like that's even what I mean. the smallest
0: roles, you're like, that's perfect.
1: 100 percent. And and this in particular might be the best cast movie he's ever made, maybe ever made for the exact reasons you yeah. said. You have to nail the casting yeah. or this movie is a train wreck. So
0: mind, I'm willing to, I'm willing to talk about other people, but I had, I, I zeroed out four performances yeah. and these, and the reason I did is because these four people, I think if these roles don't land, the movie doesn't work and every one of them lands perfectly. So I, and I'm just good. I just, I'm interested if you have the same ones or similar ones, Wahlberg mm-hmm. Burt Reynolds, John C. Riley and Julianne Moore.
1: Yeah, I would throw on Philip Seymour Hoffman. Um, I can move. He's, I he's in it very limitedly, that. but we'll talk about him. He he does such yeah, a we'll, good part of the film.
0: Yeah, I, I can definitely accept that. But yeah, I, I zeroed out those four as like very very critical. And if it's yeah. okay, we'll just we'll just roll through them. Yeah, so, let's go. Uh, let's talk about Mark Wahlberg. Woo! This is you so, think so... you're better than me. This is this is my boy's first major film performance. Which I didn't know. Bonkers. Uh, it it's so weird, Mike, because Wahlberg does not have a career where these are his kinds of movies. Right? Yeah. We all know this. Like, you know, he never again. And even he was in other good movies. So, like, you already referenced The Departed. Yeah. Uh, he was in Perfect Storm. He was in Three Kings, which, by the way, Mike, we got to do Three Kings at one point. Um, He's in all these amazing – he is in other good movies, but he never again, as far as I can tell, does this kind of role. No. Which is like a real capital A actor role. I mean, he is playing this part, and he is in, in his character has such a range of, of different kinds of things, but it's also consistent in terms of his characterization. Yes. This is just an astoundingly good performance, yes. and it's so weird that it's Mark Wahlberg. Um, the only I, I have a couple comments now I'll, obviously I really want to hear from you but you know I think that the reason why it works um, what I wrote down he's capturing stupid well-meaning <laughs> stupid but well-meaning and incredibly earnest and he's capturing that perfectly and that's hard yes. in this kind of role yes like it. You, you buy all those different parts of his character again very unintelligent very well-meaning very earnest but has flaws and has a certain and especially has a difficulty with pride yes um i there's so many things we could call out i just want to mention it and i think this scene's going to come up quite a bit when he comes back uh-huh. at the in the in the second half of the movie to jack and has to admit and basically breaks down and has to ask for help i think your essay is about this right? yes. Or, yes, well, yes 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 so so we won't necessarily go too much into it. But I just want to call that out: the performance he gives in that moment. Yes. I don't know. I was, I was, I was choking up. I'm like, this is, this is real. This is like, you are so bought into that character in that moment, and the things he's going through. I don't know. I could gush about this performance. And again, it's it's Mark Wahlberg, and I just don't get it. It's, it's so good. Yeah. You, you can go ahead. What, what do you got? What do you
1: got? Yeah, you almost have to wonder if it succeeds because he hasn't created the Mark Wahlberg trope yet. Like he hasn't decided yeah. this is who I'm going to be in every movie yet. Um, and he's willing to be something that he isn't in once he becomes a movie star, you know? Yeah. And cause I, 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 wrote down golden retriever. He's a golden retriever. He's just like, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. he's just like this lovable doofus. Um, I actually think what struck me <laughs> on this rewatch is that everyone in this movie is just an idiot um, like I used to always think, I used to always think that all the characters were dumb, and then Burt Reynolds was like brilliant, and then he was giving his little thing about art, and I was like, no, this guy's stupid too. He just doesn't think he is. Um, yeah, but, yeah. But yeah, he's just he's just a doofus, and what he and like you said, he captures that naivety, and that 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 just like he's too naive to realize how dumb he is. Kind of persona so yeah. well and he's so well meaning and and the fact that he's able to like you kind of said have these through lines of of one of the ones i always notice is how good he is at capturing throughout every stage of the film and the character um eddie's insecurity like how he's constantly asking yeah. do i look cool while i do cocaine do i look sexy right he, he captures those very nuanced insecurities are not nuanced at times really well throughout but then he also hits these stages where he's the dumb child he's the ego inflated paranoid cokehead, and then like you said in the scene where he comes back it's the bottom he captures rock bottom and the collapse of ego and the just death of self and the human i guess let me put it this way the humiliation of humility of true humility yeah. of where you are humbled um in that moment so well where he is just again he looks like a golden retriever who has just been kicked and kicked and kicked and he's coming back and Mm -hmm. being like can I please come home Uh, I don't I never would have guessed that Mark Wahlberg had this in him obviously at the time of this film because he's like you know a white rapper or whatever stupid career he was doing (laughs) and I honestly if I saw The Departed first which I guess I did and then came back to this I wouldn't have thought that the actor in The Departed had this in him um And no. and it's bonkers to think of things, you know, like how DiCaprio almost had this role. And my gut reaction, mm-hmm. having seen the part, I would have been like, whoa, that would have been a good choice. But when you watch this movie, you're like, no one else can do this. DiCaprio yeah. wouldn't have been able to do this like Mark Wahlberg does. Uh, yeah, I can't gush enough either. I, I think it's it's a it, it hinges on him being able to capture that stupid idiot innocence. And its collapse better than I, I just can't think of anyone else doing it.
0: Yeah. Uh which, you know, it's funny, I had the DiCaprio thing in my stray thoughts. I was curious what you just answered, if you thought it'd be better or worse. Yeah, yeah. DiCaprio worse. is up for the movie. Worse. Wanted to do it, but he was already obliged to Titanic. So that didn't work out for him. Mistake. Um yeah, yeah. No, he he didn't go anywhere, uh, kind of a loss actor. So but no, it is definitely a thing you know it's funny too though because I actually don't think DiCaprio is very good at Titanic like well, yeah,
1: I mean, love Titanic I don't and know, I, I don't I think know he, what he's working with in that movie
0: but we can go on that's true too I think it's the yeah. right we'll, we'll do the Titanic I'll get you to do we're Titanic. not doing Titanic <laughs> that's not gonna happen I have the goal of doing every single James Cameron movie I hope you know that <laughs> uh, have we not done one by the way no oh no we did Wait. Well, what did we do yeah you know, we haven't no we talked about You're him with right. Nolan we what are talk- we uh, what are we doing here Mike um Our, you know, How dare we I do like Paul Thomas Anderson before James. I Jr. like
1: originality in my films and filmmakers, and he's never done a, you know, We're not gonna, a new thing in we, his we, life.
0: We need to keep focused, <laughs> but but you're, you're you're talking trash. There's so, straight trash coming out. Book nights! anyways. Uh, but it is it is an interesting. I actually agree with you, but and it's funny because you're right though, because I think a lot of people, if you just heard the phrase, "Well, DiCaprio almost stood in for Wahlberg," you're like, "Oh, that would have been amazing." For the record. I do think you, you. It would have been really. Different. Yeah, yeah. Like exactly. I mean, like the yeah, like you can't ever really. He's okay. He has surprised me. I didn't know he could do Once Upon a Time. Like that was yeah. a different kind of role for him. So like I, I kind of. I, I think he can kind of do everything. So I, I do think he probably would have pulled it off well, to some degree. He can't
1: do a South African accent. So never, <laughs> never forget Blood Diamond. Never, never forget.
0: forget it. It. Did that come out? That was the year of uh, The Third Departed War as well, I think, no, right? yeah, The Departed. Oh, There's no, the you're, year right, after, you're right, you're right, yeah.
1: you're right. This is the Blood Diamond uh, podcast.
0: Well, welcome. <laughs> Our favorite movie, we've always said. it. Uh, well, yeah, Wahlberg in this movie, you can't say enough about it. It's just, it's out of nowhere. Uh, before we move on from Wahlberg, though, I did—I I wanted to talk real quick. You, you mentioned that uh, the, the character, along with a lot of the characters in, in this movie, is, are, is deeply stupid. I just want to point out, though, the movie doesn't look down on them. No, 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 right? no. Yeah, and yeah. that's key to why it works. That yeah. it's you know, it. I mean, certainly it has fun with it, and a lot of the funniest moments, which I'm sure we'll get to, come from the characters' yeah. insane stupidity. Um, but it, it's important to note that that he, the eye of the film, is not that these are stupid on people, right? Or, or I should say that it's not that. I guess I just said it. It's not that we're looking down on these people. Yeah. it doesn't dislike these people. It actually has a tremendous amount of empathy for them and affection. Um, yeah, I think affection. And affection, yes. absolutely. I have
1: an affection for golden retrievers. I mean, I don't like golden retrievers. Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah. So, so I, it, it's just worth noting because yeah. it's it's so important to the tone of this movie, which we will get to later. But, uh, but anyways, Wahlberg, you know, the movie needs him to work, and it's this out of nowhere performance there's another out of nowhere performance in this movie that is so key to why it works and is so, I just can't even wrap my head around it. But Burt Reynolds plays Jack Horner, who is uh, a, you know, a pornographic film director who kind of has a little empire. Um, and is the, that this performance, I just don't know. So, you know, to start with the things everyone knows, Reynolds hated this movie and, Yeah. and, and did not want to make this movie. Fired his agent. Uh, Yeah, that's the most famous story is that he fired his agent when he found when, uh, because his agent just said, yes, I guess is the story because he knew it was going to take him somewhere. Honestly, the stories of Reynolds with this movie have become kind of legend. Yeah, I, I encourage you to look up the IMDb trivia and just find how many contradictory stories there are. So it's actually hard to say what his relationship is with it. It seems like at minimum, he was kind of difficult on the set. Likes the movie but didn't like making it. At maximum, he's the the, the most stories you'll read. There's stories that he tried to punch out PTA at one point. There's stories that he hates the movie that he's that he felt he was laying down his fans that he was a nightmare on set. So it goes back and forth. Like you you will find a lot of range. Certainly though, it wasn't it wasn't a rosy relationship. No. For Reynolds with this movie. No. But all of that is cast into relief with the fact that this is a amazing performance. Yes. This is so so he's so in this movie Per Reynolds. He's so measured. He's injecting the perfect amount of charm, of charisma, of paternalism of 70s sleaze ball. Yes. He's, <laughs> he's landing this very difficult role. And, and this is the thing I was saying earlier, nine times out of 10, this movie fails because this role. Fails. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, like if that role doesn't land, if you, if you aren't with, uh, Eddie Adams slash Dirk Diggler, Mark Wahlberg, uh, in terms of like kind of seeing the allure of this little weird family, then you don't get the movie yeah. and it doesn't work yeah. and you don't, and you don't buy in. But you do watching the movie. You're like, "Wow, I kind of like all these people," and and they're it's pornogra- they're pornographers, and you're like, "I'm in though. I like all these people." What and it's all because of him, and and he has and you know he, he does that charm kind of thing. He also lands some really sincere emotional beats. Uh, we're gonna talk about this later too. But the scene with the colonel in prison. Oh yeah, uh, is like one of the. It, it it comes right after we're going to talk about the tonal shift of the movie, but it's one of the most harrowing scenes in the whole movie, and um, he just sells it. And he just he's he's going through like conflict and and aggression and disappointment and fear and sorry. And he's he has all this stuff that he has to sell, and he sells it. He's great. It it completely works. Um, I don't know. I could talk for another thirty minutes. But Mike, what do you think about what do you have with for Reynolds with this movie?
1: No, I think it, I actually don't have much to add. Uh, I agree with everything he said. I, you know, sleazeball father, you know, he he juggles (laughs) those two, uh, those two things perfectly. I mean, the character is summarized to me in the contrast between him pitching pornography as art in one scene and you see the charisma, like you're saying, you see that like, yeah, I would buy into what this guy's selling too. And then it's immediately followed by the scene where he sits down on the couch with a cigar and watches Eddie and roll girl have sex. And, uh, that's just his character in a nutshell is that kind of dichotomy of like a father of wayward children. And also just this really, really, really sleazy pornographer. (laughs) I don't know. Um, and you know, it's such a fascinating choice that we are one of many areas where I'm out of my depth talking about it, because I don't know, I couldn't even begin to lay out the depth of this choice, but it's so fascinating that you never see him engage in sexual activity, um, not even with his wife, right? He, he gives like these very um, almost <laughs> prudishly heartfelt kisses, like pecks on the lips or on the head or on the cheek, and and he's such a fascinating character. And so much of that is delivered through his performance, through how he carries himself, through how he is a bundle of contradiction and mystery. And you're just like, how did you end up doing this? And, uh, yeah, everything else he said, I think it's spot on. He's he's amazing in this movie.
0: Yeah, my, I completely agree. Um, you almost just can't say enough about this performance. It's so weird. I did want to call attention to real quick, you know. What, one of the ways that movies like these become so legendary uh, um in film circles and whatever you you need these kinds of stories right yeah. you need this kind of conflict like it's such an important part of the mythos of this movie is that one of the most like it's got this transfixing performance from a guy who hated it and didn't want to be there and was mad the whole time and then gets nominated for an academy award yeah 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 and uh, also his only nomination, by the way, which is somehow just, I don't know, there's such an irony there that he hated the whole time. It's so key to, like, the story of this movie, right, of why we're even talking about it. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if you have any more thoughts on that. We can move on. No, yeah, I'm good. Amazing performance. So I have two more I want to talk about. I, I do recognize, though, I've I've taken the lead on everyone so far and. and maybe taking the words out of your mouth. So I'll let you start if you want to. The other people I had that I really wanted to cover was John C. Riley and Julianne Moore. Um, Do you have, do you want to go into either of those?
1: Uh, Yeah, I think Julianne Moore is, is a good place to start. And I don't really have a lot specifically to say. I mean, it's just a heartbreaking character that she captures, like the scenes in which you see despair on her mm-hmm. face, like her face, you have to you have to have some chops as an actress to stare into a mirror and for me to be like that person's dead inside. You know, this yeah. person so deeply longs to be a motherly figure and is so ill-equipped to do it in some ways, um, and is wrestling deeply with like essentially being her own worst enemy, but also being a victim of the social views of what she does at the time. And that's mm. why it makes her such a fascinating character is it's a mix of both, right? You yep. have the scene where, you know, she doesn't get a fair shot at all for a child custody hearing because it's just like, oh, she does porn, so she's not going to get her kid. And then mm. you also have the scenes where they called the party and she's doing coke and she misses her son's phone call, and mm. she delivers so powerfully in these scenes, um, both the desperation and the despair, but also that deep impulse in her to care for these mismatched people that become her children and her own biological one, right? And Mm -hmm. I don't know. I mean, I I just can't say enough. I keep going back to those mirror scenes, but you look into her eyes and it's almost like, how is this even a performance? This person looks like a hopeless vessel, an empty vessel who has just been broken by the injustice done to her and her own choices. And Uh, Yeah, I don't know. It's simple to say that, but hopefully that carries (laughs) that carries the weight of which I am. I have respect for this performance.
0: Yeah, I I completely agree. I I think you hit everything I was going to say. I think that in a way, this performance is a microcosm of the whole movie. Because, like, if I, again, if I'm just explaining to someone, oh, what's the, what's her role in this movie? Well, she's kind of a mom figure to all of these people that she works with, and they're all uh, pornographic actors, so they all have sex on screen. And, uh, yeah. And then if I just yeah. and you know, you're, and yeah, also she's it. a drug addict, and she doesn't, and if you heard that, I think you'd be like, huh? What? I, that All of that sounds horrible, and I don't necessarily want to watch that. What, what are you talking about? But, it, in the movie it works and it sells it. And not to say that you accept the character necessarily, but you accept that the character exists, Yeah. right? You, yeah. you, you, you see the logic, the internal consistency there. Uh, the other thing I wrote, it's important that you don't outright. Cause, Cause she actually does a lot of the, technically a lot of the worst stuff in the movie I think is done by her. Like, especially introducing multiple characters that, She considers herself like a mother figure to two drugs, right? That is a huge part of the movie. Um, It's important, though, that you don't outright hate her before you get to the court scene, right? Because the court scene is where everything kind of turns for the character because us watching, when we hit that scene, it's like, okay, wait, this person is in deep despair. And you might notice that. uh, you, You know that beforehand. It's obvious beforehand. But that's where it becomes just blatant. Yeah, and becomes harrowing. Yeah, and like I said, you have to get to that scene not having already dismissed her. Yeah, and that's a hard line to walk. Yeah, uh, and yeah, and she kills it, and and it's it's actually in a sense maybe the most tragic arc, I, I would say, almost of the. Oh, whole movie. definitely.
1: I think I think if there's any, any character that is constantly reminding you that there's stakes to this, it's her. Like there's a yeah. level of, what it what is so crucial about her character is that it's so easy with the stupidity and the general topic of the film to begin to kind of treat it not as a romp, but as, as goofy. And what her character constantly does is grounds you in like, no, there's stakes to this. There's, there's loss. Like there is. And, and you know, one of the things the film does so well, which we'll get into later, I'm sure is the foreshadowing of innocence, lost and, and the people harmed by what, is largely portrayed as a positive beginning and it kind of, yeah. she kind of constantly reminds you that there are seeds of the destructiveness of what's going on here that have been there from the start, that it, this, this life or at least the unhealthy parts of how they are engaging this life. I don't want to blame sex as like the thing. Um, it's more just the, the actual relationships and the, the mentalities of the people in it it can lead to disaster and it's already costing yeah. someone much. Right. And she just grounds it again. I think stakes is the best way to think of it where it's, there are stakes to what's happening.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. I, I think that's great. My only other character and you know, even looking at it now, I'm like, uh, maybe I was being a little cheeky by cheeky by saying that John C. Riley's performance is required <laughs> for this movie to work. I don't know if that's technically true. Sure. I do know that he's, Doing this thing of like kind of escalated comic relief is what I wrote. Like, cause essentially he's comic relief. But I I do think it is worth noting, first of all, this is a weird role to land, and he's so perfect for it. Yeah. And he's he's it's so in the wheelhouse of what he can do. Um, and secondly, I guess I'm curious, did this invent the John C. Riley character? I don't know. Like, if you think yeah, about it, like, know. specifically, like, the, the scene I, I remember most, I, I think the character's name is Jake. It's Thomas Jane's character, but... No, his, the, na- his you name's know, the... Reed.
1: Reed. <laughs> Reed. Oh, wait. Sorry. I, in in, in hindsight...
0: Wait, well, yeah, so I'm talking about the guy that they connect with. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. Yeah. You're right. You're right. Okay. So, yeah. Uh, the scene where he's discussing their heist that they're about to pull off, Uh-huh. and yep. Riley keeps interjecting with obvious questions, so the guy says... I'm gonna call him, and and then Riley interjects. You have his number. He's yeah, like, it's the best. Yeah, I have his number. And then later he says, so we're gonna go to his house. And so then again, Riley interjects. You know where he lives. <laughs> that stuff <laughs> is just incredible. Yeah. And it's and and it's very similar to Wahlberg's performance that he's selling a very sincere stupidity, um, and it's just and it just works really really well. And it's again similar to Wahlberg. I don't know if I always knew he would have been able to pull this off because there are some things in here that are a little bit more nuanced with that. Uh, but it's just a great role. And I just it's one of my favorite performances in the movie. So I just wanted to call that out. Yeah. Um, you're you're walking away in. But you also had uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman you wanted to cover. Right.
1: Yeah. All I have to say about John C. Riley is I love when he they're jumping into the pool and he says, what's the line? He says, yeah, that was pretty good. Let me show you what you did wrong. Like we all have, and then obviously he like belly flops trying to do a flip (laughs) and you're just like, (laughs) we all have the friend who just thinks they're better at everything than you and like is really just not good at anything. (laughs) It's just the best. (laughs) I just love it. Yeah. He's great. He's great in this movie. Um, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman is definitely a character I want to highlight. He's not heavily in this film, but I think his, his performance is critical to the tone shift halfway through the film um and again he's another character that really kind of nails the i don't want to say it's insidious but that there's something wrong from the start right yeah um, he is always left out he is the kind of person who you know it's so much of this film is about the beautiful community that they've built in this beautiful picture of it And how it's all-inclusive, and Scotty's there to remind you that it's not always all-inclusive, right? There are people who are left out, who are ghosts, who are forgotten, who so desperately want this home that they're selling, and they're just, for whatever reason, not seen and not invited in, right? Um, Yeah, yeah. But I also think that he's just the king of stealing, like, entire movies while being in them for, like, two seconds. You know, this is... I always think of him when when I think of the movie Almost Famous. The first person I think of is Philip Seymour Hoffman. Mm. I think of him talking yeah. about the coolest thing or cool people are like those uh, the nerds or whatever. I can't remember the line, but he's he's only in that movie for like two scenes, and his performance in it is amazing. I think of Mission Impossible and the villain role he does in that, and then I think of this movie. I think of him sitting in the car after he tries to kiss Eddie, and he breaks down, and he's just saying, "I'm an effing idiot. I'm an effing idiot." and that is almost the most gut-wrenching part of that turn in which the whole film goes sideways after that New Year's Eve party. And yeah. the scene I think of is him in that car. And I think that's yeah, just that there's just there's just something about that, man. Um that just speaks to how deeply 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 good he was as an actor, especially a character actor um absolutely but yeah i just want to shout him out i just that's it i mean no it's just i good.
0: i think you're right I, I think he's he makes an argument for the most overqualified person given the size of the role they're in um in this movie because it is an extremely small role in fact that scene you just says is nearly the only significant scene he's in he's in a lot of scenes yeah. but he's usually like you said in the background kind of he's not yeah. really a main character Um, that's, yeah, the, we're going to have, we're going to talk quite a bit about the new year's party because the whole movie sort of revolves around that. Uh, but that's one of three or four different moments that are like catapulting you violently into the second half of the movie. Yeah. Um, and it's so important and, and, and you're right. Like basically you set the scene in the first half of the movie with these, you know, mostly this very idyllic atmosphere, but there's a couple small threads that are starting. You have William H Macy's characters being, being, you know, the situation with his wife who's blatantly cheating on him constantly, and you have this, and you have, um, like you said, uh, you know, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman's character, uh, Scotty, and and his clear like affection for Dirk and all this stuff, and but still being pushed to the side. You have all these little things that are starting. The New Year's party, they all become huge things and then the rest of the movie is dealing with the ramifications right yeah yeah. and is it is is everything falls apart at once um we're gonna talk quite a lot about that with the structure of the movie but all of that to say he is a huge part of why that works you have to sell that transition if it doesn't land then then the movie just doesn't feel cohesive it doesn't yeah it doesn't have an arc to how the how it's developing so yeah i i actually agree i think he's great um, I don't have anything to say about it. So I just want to mention Don Cheadle great too.
1: Okay. Oh, no, 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 no. Um, no, 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 We cannot move off. <laughs> you don't want, I can't oh, do that? Oh my gosh. The scene in the radio shop when he turns up the music and it's just like country
0: banjo crap gets me every time.
1: You have to at least, I, least acknowledge that scene. It is so funny. It's
0: so good. I wasn't even going to say that wasn't the first one that came to my mind. The first one that came to my mind is at the, actually also at the New Year's party. I think the single funniest moment in the whole movie is when they cut to him sitting <laughs> the <sunrise> alone <laughs> silent with the egyptian getup. up yep just and it's such a long shot it holds I it i swear for I like know. a minute yep it's the it's the funniest shot in the whole movie what he says i i, I just like i it. like sunsets
1: more than sunrises or whatever she, he's like i thought i was the only one and you're like oh my god this character is great um uh, also when it's, it's when, a great character. When John Lee St. Riley shows him the magic trick and he's like, Does it make you nervous when you're dealing with these evil forces? <laughs>
0: <laughs> he's a great character, and and it's funny too, because I, I he's arguably I, I remember I, I read this somewhere as a criticism, and I think it's actually a bad criticism, but it's an interesting point. Someone was I remember reading someone who said, So that character could have been cut out of the movie with literally no effect on the movie. Sure. I think that's true, but I also think that's missing the purpose of those side stories, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Is that it's, it's it's building up the world more. It's it's giving you it's lending depth to what's happening on the screen cuz yeah, ultimately, you could 100% exercise that character and it actually doesn't affect the movie almost at all. Um but, like I said, it affects the mood, right? It yeah. it, it changes your relationship. It, your relationship is just a little bit deeper because of these weird little side stories. Plus, the donut shop scene is one of the best scenes in the movie. Yeah. So we'll and, get to that in a second.
1: And I think he's just, he's, PTA is giving us grace with this character where one, like, one character gets out alive and, you know, yeah. actually benefits from this exercise. Um, and doesn't just like get completely destroyed in the process because you know, he gets his money and he gets to make his thing Um, real quick before we move off the cast. Just want to shout out Heather Graham as roller girl is perfect in this film. William H. Macy. Perfect. Uh, The bit parts with Thomas Jane and uh, Louis Guzman. It's just Mm -hmm. perfect. They're all just perfectly cast. So we're not going to talk about them, but you wanted to throw out a shout out. So,
0: Lots of little, yeah, it's it's an ensemble movie, obviously, you know, um, PTA would go on to make several extremely good ensemble movies. Again, you know, without, man, we really could gush about him forever, but yeah. it's worth noting he makes single performance movies that are incredible yeah. and ensemble performance yep. movies that are incredible. He's That's wild, best. but whatever. He's, he's the best. Uh, <laughs> he's the best. Okay. Uh, moving on. Other reasons why this movie works. Um, we've, you know, we frankly have just already talked about a lot, so I just want to, explicitly say this for a bit this is a very particularly structured movie um, mm-hmm. it, it, in, in a sense so so we've also mentioned that it takes quite a lot from Goodfellas and the cl- the most obvious thing it takes from Goodfellas and almost anyone who's seen both of them will will notice this is that they're both very much about setting up this world that is kind of enticing and then destroying it yeah, ruthlessly in the yeah. second half of the movie And they both turn, like, they both have a transition moment. But Goodfellas is a little more subtle. Uh, It's arguably, I guess, when he goes to prison. It's when they kill, um, arguably, like, it could be, like, when when they kill Billy Bats is maybe the the transition. It's just a little bit less clear in Goodfellas. In this movie, it is very, very clear. You have the first half of the movie, like we said. It's been setting up. There's this idyllicness. There's this... Uh, everything's going really well. It's just fun. It's funny. Uh, Dirk is getting into this into this life, into these characters. Everything is going so well. You get to New Year's Eve at 1980, right, or leading into 1980. And it starts at the beginning of that scene because things are going wrong. The first thing that happens, like we said, uh, you have this thing with Scotty and, and Dirk where Scotty basically admits that he's in, attracted to Dirk and it goes over horrible and it's very emotionally gutting and you're kinda like, oh, this is different. I don't like this. You have um the colonel and that one guy go up to Jack and basically have this long conversation of, hey, every ambition you've had is gonna fail. And you have to either get ahead of that to keep making money or lose out and, you know, not be able to keep working in the next few years. And Jack's yeah. like, I don't want to hear that. Um and so you're kind of building up all these little things. And of course then uh, you know, William H. Macy's character again finds his wife cheating on him and as they're in in this amazing long single take shot walks out of the house, gets the gun loads it, walks back in as they're counting down from 10 shoots his wife and her lover, comes back out smiles and shoots himself and then it hard cuts to 80s. Yep. And that is the that is one of the most effective Scenes of any movie I've ever seen, ever. Agreed. Like, you you just, it's such a turning point, and you're completely there, and you're just watching the movie. You're just like, wait, what kind of movie am I watching again? Yeah. It 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 completely changes the entire tone of the movie going forward. And he, because he sells it, he doesn't. That's not a one off. That is the rest of the movie, is that we are going to dive into these. Actually, really, really, really painful stories. I forgot how hard the second half of the movie is to watch, mm-hmm. frankly. It's relentless. It is yeah. just, it's brutal. It's yeah. just so, and again, it's very like Goodfellas in that sense, where Goodfellas is the classic example of a very good movie that is also very harrowing to watch. Um, so, yeah, I, I guess that, you know, if I was saying why this movie works, we talked about the actors, but that structure and pulling that off in a way where, again, on the first half he sells you on the family he rips it apart and then he just he just ruthlessly you know cuts up every remaining source of any kind of happiness and then kind of sticks the landing where it sort of comes back around but it's complicated i don't know i just there's so few movies that do that well there's maybe only two if you really got down to it like i don't know if there's any other movie besides Goodfellas and and in this that land that structure so well. It's so good. I don't know if you have thoughts on that.
1: I mean, I think you covered most of my thoughts. Pretty, pretty spot on. Um, I I definitely latched onto this time, the structure of the film and how flawless it is. You know, I kept coming back to the mirror imagery where they, he so effectively Mm. like is telling you once you've seen it more than once with each time someone's talking to a mirror, we're heading inching closer and closer to disaster in some way. Like you're getting Mm. a vibe of where the film's going based on, for example, what Eddie is saying in the mirror. You know, he has like the opening scene in his bedroom where it's panning around the room. It's all the posters and he's like boxing himself and you're like, Oh, it's a kid. It's innocent. And then, you know, uh, there's more scenes in this, but there's the middle where he's trying to say, I'm a star while he can't get an erection and he's coked out of his mind all the way Mm. to the final scene of the film where, like you said, it comes back around, but you know how, how much has actually changed if anything and how positive is this? And he's speaking, I'm going to be a big, bright bright, shining star. That's what I want. That's what I'm going to get. Right. And Mm. each of those scenes is kind of building into that thing that you're saying where it's so often setting up in the beginning, giving you tastes of foreshadow, of the loss of innocence, whether it's the Colonel showing up with the far younger woman at the party, it's how they respond to the girl. ODing, how cold that is that you're like, Oh, maybe this yeah. is great. Um, William H. Macy's already said that stuff all building to this turn that in some ways, I, I feel like watching this time. You're like, Oh, I should have seen this coming the first time I saw it, that this is all going to go bad. Right. Yeah. But But what makes it so brilliant the first time you see it is that the way he structures it makes it such a blindsiding effect that still, after the fact, can make you feel like you should have seen it, right? Um, I think that's just a testament to his skill, to his craft. Um, And then obviously, there's just like, man, after that 80s card um, and it cuts straight to the interviews where they're talking about violence seeping into pornography, uh, the rape scenes, Dirk hitting women, you know, immediately followed by the Colonel being a pedophile, it's so unbelievably jarring. It's in, in making commentary about where this industry is going and foreshadowing, um, not to get too into modern times, but like the danger of fantasy fulfillment that pornography has largely Mm. become right. The violence and sexuality, um, man, it's just like, it shakes you. It, I, I was just so shaken. Every part of that turn is so stark, like you were saying, and such a gut punch. And even like the way they talk about sex afterwards is so gross. Um, yeah, I guess the only last thing I would say is that that then all builds the the inevitable collapse, which has another great transition slide. The what is it? It's the long way down, and then per- per- yeah. in parenthesis, one last thing, right? And it's Dirk prostituting himself, getting beat up, roller girl on this tv show both of them end in violence which the movie has lacked violence until this point yeah um and the characters just have this image or this moment where like the image of themselves is just utterly dead in fact like you said yeah the going back to the guy talking about video instead of film the image of what they hope to achieve is dead too and instead they're just making filth they're making like the worst parts of our world and yeah all of that is built into literally how he lays out the film. And I don't know what to do with that other than just to applaud because it's
0: pretty amazing. I I completely agree. I I think you, you hit the nail on the head that, and, and especially that what you are talking about with the foreshadowing that it's these, the reason why these themes work so well is because they're there the whole movie. You don't see them the whole movie, but they're there and they're they're It's an undercurrent and it's, it's so carefully constructed in that sense yeah, it's just it you go on such a journey I guess with this movie is what I would say and Well, yeah, like, that's so important to it. Uh-huh. I was
1: even thinking about you know the topic of greed which we could have a whole podcast on greed in this movie and what it says about greed. But it's mm-hmm. one of those awesome moments where PTA plays his hand. There's that line that's like Dirk Diggler, he is a man of lust, right? And that's literally where the film's going. It's like, hey, this is a man who always just wants more. And Yeah we're going to find out where that leads and it's not good. Right. Um, Yeah. Just, it's just brilliant. I don't really have anything else to say. It's just brilliant.
0: Yeah. And again, to, to find all of that in the context of golden age (laughs) pornography, it's just, it's just like, what, what are you doing? He's just flexing. It's just, it's such an interesting setting for this. And and again, it lands and, and you know, it's worth noting too, like, it's really important that it was a very different context because if this was or a very unique context I should say because it is trending so close to the same messaging and same thematic of something like Goodfellas or same themes of something like Goodfellas that it's like it almost had to be this very 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 different context Um, but again that's the brilliance it's just I don't know we can't can't say it enough different ways it's just such a well put together movie the Honestly, I only have one other thing in why this movie works, and we've been talking about it a lot. It's just a really funny movie. Yeah. And in a way that uh, arguably, except for Punch Drunk Love, which I've only seen once, um, I don't think he ever does again. And I don't know if that's because he's uninterested in it or or what it is, but this is just a laugh-out-loud movie, and especially, again, the first half, in a really weird way. And uh, I don't know exactly. I don't, I'm I not even sure if I could say what that adds to the movie other than it's just makes it fun to watch, sort of. Uh, again, you always have that asterisk because the second half is so rough, but I don't know. It's just an incredibly funny movie, um, mm-hmm. and it works really well. Um, yeah, that's all I got. What, do you have anything else?
1: Um, yeah. I So, I mean, a throwaway thing to say is that it's just like an unbelievable vibes film, which is kind of going to what you're saying um it really captures 70s 80s the soundtrack the style the color palette oh my god we haven't talked yeah. about the
0: soundtrack yeah, right there yeah, with yeah, good yeah. of just like it's so nails the time period like you're you're right there with the yeah. characters as we're moving and it and it contrasts with and it you know adds depth to it it's an incredible soundtrack yeah absolutely
1: yeah yeah, yeah. and i mean like You know, that's a good segue into just talking about some of the great scenes. Because one of the best scenes of this movie is the heist scene at the end. And it's literally one of the most disorienting, nerve-wracking scenes I've ever seen. You know, the Mm -hmm. firecrackers going off the entire time is just unnerving. But man, the cut to 99 Red balloons right before Todd gets killed is such a perfect use of a soundtrack adding to a film. Like, (laughs) again... (laughs) It's such a disorienting scene. And then suddenly the firecrackers all stop, the shooting all stops and 99 red balloons comes on and I'm like, Oh no, (laughs) like this is about, it's about to go down, you know, (laughs) it's like, and it's so good. It's just like such a, and what's so wild is it's so dark, but such a playful choice. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's a very playful thing to do to be like, here's a song about nuclear war. It's about to really go off. And then obviously the next scene is Todd getting blasted with like a sawed off shotgun. Um, Man, it's it's so it's the soundtrack is so effective at achieving what he's trying to get you to feel and to think about in each scene, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Um, Yeah. But yeah, if if you're cool with it, I don't know if you have anything to add about that scene, but I would love to just talk about two or three of the great scenes. Obviously, we've already talked about
0: I have some stuff with that scene that'll come up later, uh, but we'll get to that later. So, yeah, keep going.
1: Okay. yeah, yeah. We already talked about the entire New Year's party. I mean, whatever. There's nothing else to say. It's insane. It's brilliant. Um, yeah. you know I think the other thing that I was really struck with was actually the scene where Burt Reynolds is making the pitch to Eddie on joining the industry you know you actually believe he sees this as high art we already talked about that like it's my dream to make a film that is true and right and dramatic and yeah. again there's just these small scenes like that that are really effective at making you forget what it is you're watching and you're just like oh no he's talking about porn um i really like the number and this is a place where i'm totally out of my depth so forgive me film nerds but some of pta's directing in specific scenes is just something i could spend all day talking about you know the great opening Mm. walkthrough shot in the club introducing all the characters again unbelievable song in the background phenomenal scene um there are like little small things like roller girl when she goes to find Eddie for the first time and it does the close up on her skates as she's going through the hallway and then she comes around Mm -hmm. the corner and says hey and she just crosses one skate over the other it's just a cool shot right um yeah and then man the other two and and the
0: movie's filled with those by the way with those little shots that and you think like he didn't have to do that he could just shot it like you know kind of standard coverage or whatever and then who cares but he's just there's almost like a a joy of a young filmmaker, right? And yeah. like a lack of restraint that's that's really really cool cuz he's so good. Yes. And he's just like I'm just going to I'm going to do this shot for no reason. I don't need to do this, but I just kind of want to flex and it's like, "Oh my god, yeah, keep going."
1: Yeah. yeah. Well, the other the other thing I was going to throw out is actually a technique that appears in a lot of scenes, but some of them more effectively than others, which is that what makes this movie work is how good he is at effectively using and creating contrast with his cuts and that is Mm. so often in this movie he's just like bam 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 using quick cuts and then it has this sudden jarring contrast where the scene just stops and the camera stays on one character for uncomfortably long usually in a very emotional heartbreaking scene, right? I think of the scene where Dirk blows up at Jack and it's super frantic. And then it just ends with this long shot on Julianne Moore's face as she loses another son. Um, I think of the Colonel scene where like up until that movie point, the movie's like bouncing. And then there's just like this three minute scene or two minute scene where it's literally a still shot almost entirely on the Colonel's face as he emits this horrible thing. And then it cuts to silence. Mm. That is such an effective use of contrast. In those scenes, it's just amazing. I don't really know what to say.
0: Can I call out with that scene, too? Because thats I think that's one of the most effective scenes in the movie. Yeah. Possibly because it's so soon after the New Year's thing. Yeah. And it really just hammers home, like, hey, we're not having fun anymore. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah, yeah, hey, yeah. things are getting bad. And, like, the, the, the moment I remember most and, like, has always stuck with me is, is when he starts saying, like, but, Jack, you're still my friend, right? Oh, my God. And yeah. Jack is in the middle of this thing. And, and Jack hangs up the phone. And from where the camera is on Jack's side, we're watching the colonel as he keeps asking him, but because the phone's dead, we can't hear him at all. So the shot is completely silent. It's you're right. It's really long, like even just this last part where we can't hear him is on its own like 30 or 40 seconds. Yes. Of him just silently, like you know, looking through the window. Jack, you're still my friend. Yeah. And you can't hear him. Yeah. It's just silent, and it's it's just. Brutal. It's just so brutal. It's like I, I, I don't know. It, it's but it's it, incredible.
1: Yeah. And again, that's what like. And Goodfellas doesn't necessarily do this. And that's but it's such an effective thing in this movie because Goodfellas is just like fast all the way through for the most part. But yeah, yeah. It, those moments hit and you remember them because it's moving at breakneck speed until it's not. And it's not. Yeah. There is no slowing down. It's just breaks. I mean, yeah. Because it's like you're saying, it just stays it's this movie with a disco soundtrack all the way through. And then you have this scene where a guy is begging (laughs) a pedophile in prison is begging Jack to call him his friend. And there's no sound at all.
0: Yeah. That's such an
1: effective use of contrast. Right. And again, I'm getting dangerously close to gushing about PTA, (laughs) but man, I, and again, I don't want to bring it up again, but the, the Julianne Moore scene during that fight is another example of that where it just, you just feel it you're just like oh man how you shot this scene made me feel all the feels and it's because it suddenly freezes on this person who has lost another child holy crap yeah
0: (laughs) oh my god god this movie and even and you know and i mean we could keep doing it but just also real quick julia Moore, the the court scene because you were talking about the hard cuts too right when it hard cuts they're in the middle of the it's obviously not going well and it hard cuts to her outside just sobbing yes and same thing uncomfortably long you sit there for like a minute and she's just crying nothing happens other than that oh my god it's so good um yeah i don't know man do you want to want to move on yeah to uh so so in this section of the podcast yeah yeah, sorry sorry, does
1: dirk diggler's dick like straddle what worked and what didn't work for you (laughs) (laughs) Uh, we have to talk about the the elephant in the room at some point (laughs) <laughs> so to speak, elephant <laughs> in the room, so to speak.
0: Is oh. though, you know what? You know what? I will say this. I will say this. We're talking about how good of a director he is. The fact that you don't see that until the last 30 seconds of the movie <laughs> it's, raging it's bowl, just, bowl, baby. again, it's a flex. It's Raging Bull. He's doing the same. <laughs> it's so good. Oh my God. Anyway. Okay. Go on. Go uh, on. Go on. So technically in this part of the podcast, we talk about what holds this movie back, why it doesn't work. I have two things written down, Mike, and neither of them am I very beholden to. I'll just be honest. So, uh, well, in one of them, okay, I'm just going to start with this one. Do you mind if I just go real quick? Yeah. 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 So before Maggie's meeting with the judge and her ex-husband, uh, the little – one of the little cards come up that says Tuesday morning, September 1983. I'm sure there's a great reason why it's randomly so specific without – also also without being specific because Tuesday morning, September doesn't make any sense. Uh, but I can't figure it out. No, that's no. technically why this doesn't work and that's – I just – I'm – I want to illustrate that that's the level I'm on. If you ask me what the flaws are in this movie, I'm like, I don't know. I didn't understand that title card very much. That's kind of (laughs) all I got. I don't know. The other one I have, I'm all, I'm not, is technically more serious, but I'm not very beholden to it because what I wrote was, does the scene at Rahad Jackson's house go too long? And I mean, I don't think it does because it does go too long. But I think that's the point, right? Yeah, it's kind of it's exactly like the uh, the last or the the cocaine scene in Goodfellas, which very famously makes you extremely uncomfortable. The scene in in, in Jackson's house makes you extremely uncomfortable. And while watching, I was like, I cannot believe this is still going on. But as much as I would say that doesn't work, it's also why it works. It's purposefully doing that because I think he wants you to feel distinctly uncomfortable and it really really works so i don't know i i I don't know i guess that's that's all i got Uh, it's
1: it's the long way down i mean
0: yeah yeah so that's all i got i don't know what 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 do you have mike why doesn't this movie work what do you let me phrase it to you like this mike where's paul thomas anderson where are you a better filmmaker than paul thomas anderson where where do you think hey paul good job but maybe you could have done this what do you got
1: yeah, I wrote nothing. Nothing didn't work. Okay. That's, cool. that's what I wrote. Um, and then my next two notes were the Colonel question mark, cocaine question mark. So that tells you where I'm at. Um, I mean, honestly, I have almost nothing to say. The only slight note I have is I don't always know what to do when a movie, like, so blatantly pays homage to another movie. So we've been bringing up Goodfellas a lot. Um, Especially the scenes that capture like the cocaine-induced decline—it it just so yeah. deeply copies, but that's not the right word. But it is—it is very directly referencing another movie in mm-hmm. form and function. And I don't know what to do with that. Uh, I don't think it doesn't work. I love this movie. I think it's bold that he did that.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, but yeah, that's all I got. I'm out after that. <laughs>
0: It's funny you say that too because actually I think it, as much as this movie is so clearly a goodfellas homage I actually think the most egregious one and I say egregious it's not bad and if anything it's amazing but I almost say I almost think that the um the Raging Bull one is more yeah like cuz that last scene is just it's Raging, Raging Bull yeah 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 That is exactly what happens in Raging Bull 100%. If anything once again that's where the the different setting comes to help him so much. Cause it's like if I if it was the same if it was a character in the same situation you'd be like okay this is egregious but you're watching a porn actor talk himself up before a scene yeah. and the difference in setting I think is why it lands and why you're not like dude you're just ripping off Scorsese instead you're like oh that's really smart he took that moment completely recontextualized it and that's really cool so yeah, yeah. it's not what doesn't work but it no. it's I, I agree it's notable. I guess maybe yeah, is yeah. how much it does om- homage slash rip off these other movies. Uh, yeah, I guess uh, I guess we covered it. Um, stray thoughts. Mike and I each have prepared a series of stray thoughts where we have either trivia or just questions or just small things to go back and forth with. Uh, I'll go first if that's okay. Yep. Mike Wahlberg's best performance: Buggy Nights, Departed. Or The Happening. Go.
1: <laughs> well, I really think... Well, you know, there,
0: there's there's think one the, standout answer.
1: Well, I, I think that the trees actually steal the show in The Happening. Um, just some really good... That might be right. Trees uh, killing I, I, people performances in that movie. Um, you know, I also so deeply love him in The Departed. So I'm just going to... It's gonna, such a good role. Yeah, I think I'm just going to go with Shooter. Okay.
0: <laughs> there you go. Nothing more to say. Uh, my other, uh, my other one I was going to ask was uh, the Italian job, and it's funny because it's not even that that's a particularly bad performance or movie. It's just so generic it's that I just want to call it out. It's fine. It's just that that <laughs> is fine. the that role could be a million different action actors, yeah. and you would never know the difference. What about it's Te- incredible?
1: What about Ted too? Where's that fall in your power ranking?
0: <laughs> That's at the top. I'll okay. be honest. Yeah, we're, we're, we've been fronting this whole time. Go ahead. Let's check out. let straight out.
1: Um, the reactions to Eddie's dick are priceless. Uh, my favorite are the colonels who says, "Why yeah. thank you, Eddie," and then it's just a long shot of him smiling. And then um, when Philip Seymour Hoffman has like a stroke, <laughs> like on the <laughs> set, it's like so funny. It's just so funny.
0: <laughs> it's great. It's great. Um, is it weird? if the donut shop scene makes me kind of want a donut. No, I was feeling. you. It's very like they, cause it, and again, weird decisions that we spend that really long shot where we're the angle of the, I guess the clerk. Um, and like chills talking straight to the camera as we're going over all the different things I want to call out to, uh, you know, actually real quick, we didn't talk about the scene at all. That's an amazing scene. Oh, and man. is like, yeah. is, is one of the weirdest little, and again, it's almost weird. Cause it's, it's like it's its own little story, its yeah. own little movie in the, inside the movie, um, and so it doesn't fit into the themes of the movie, which I think is why it doesn't come up. But on its own, that is just a really good scene, it and is. specifically, like there's these little touches, like I love when Cheeto's like, "Oh, is that a little? Is that a little Christmas thing, you guys?" Yeah, do? and they have that, a back and forth.
1: That's where I relate it to him, where it's like that would be me in a donut shop. Yeah, like oh, be- is this? Is that what this is? <laughs>
0: <laughs> and the way it sets up the robber and yeah. the clerk and then the, the conservative gun guy. And then, and it's gets so violent so fast. Like I forgot how gory it is that yeah. he's got like, he's got like, like brain matter on him. John yeah. Cheadle, Don yeah. Cheadle, Uh, and then looking down at the money yes. and just, and just that shot. And it's so long of him, like the shot reverse shot of him and the money and him and the money. Um, That's an amazing scene, I guess. So I guess I I kind of ramble a little bit in terms of stray thoughts. It also just makes me want a donut, which is weird, but I don't know. It's a great shot. What do you got?
1: If I committed a double murder and suicide in your home, how long would it take you to put a painting of me up on your wall? Because (laughs) they definitely have a painting. Jack puts a painting of Macy's character up on his wall at the end. And I'm just like, but why? Why? Like, but why?
0: I will also mention, though, it's very that's actually very critical because otherwise, they do not talk about that at all. No. The, the character in dialogue never, ever comes up again, which is a very interesting decision. You're right, though. There is a painting up there. The answer is uh, probably quite a while. I'll be honest. Yeah, yeah it's going to take a be minute. my... <laughs> Yeah, I would not not my first reaction. I guess is what I would say. People um, I want to
1: remember fondly on a daily basis. Ah, that guy who murdered about two people in my home and killed himself.
0: Especially when they're, I don't know. It feels like maybe they would feel slightly complicit given the, the you know ah, his is maybe it's a sign of remorse state. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't yeah, know. That's I a great know. question though. Um what I wrote down is Alfred Molina with a '70s yes. porn stash in a nightgown playing Russian roulette with firecrackers going off. Can we just discuss? Yes. I forgot he was in this movie, and I forgot that that was his part and his role. And I don't know. I'm in all. It, it is. It is. It is something else. It is an incredible. Yeah. I don't know. Mike, what do you got? Do you have thought? I don't even know what to say.
1: I just wrote (laughs) Alfred Molina showing up as an absolutely insane cokehead in his underwear who eventually murders the Punisher with a shotgun is my favorite cameo (laughs) of all time. Dr. Octopus in all caps, exclamation mark, exclamation mark, exclamation mark. Um, I Every time I have seen this movie, I have gone on IMDb and confirmed that that is in fact Alfred Molina.
0: I do it. Every I have done the exact same word for word. I was sitting there watching the movie, and I pulled out my phone. I'm like, "That's not really Alfred Molino, is it? Yeah, right." Because I every always because you don't because <laughs> it's it's gotta be one of the greatest small cameos ever. Like I, I genuinely don't know what it what would even what would even compare to. It. I don't know. I got nothing. It's this little little part, and I Alfred Molino is like, like a big actor. Like
1: well, I don't it, it, know. It reminds me of like tom cruise in tropic thunder where i had no concept of him being in it and he's so against type of what he usually does and it's so off the wall insane that it's memorable and yet it's not memorable (laughs) because i still look it up every single time i can't believe it i'm like that there's no way there's no way it's incredible it's incredible uh go ahead what's your next thought is there anything more awkward and funny than someone just cold reading a porn film script Like when William H. Macy is like, and then Kathy does Joe and then they go at it and then blank does blank and they go at it is so funny to me and so uncomfortable.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, it gets back to what we started with, which is like this movie thoroughly demystifies sex in the context of the movie. Yeah, that is it is not a it's what we're saying it is not a sexy movie at all. It is. (laughs) so clinical on how it approaches it it's it's yeah it's kind of funny but you're right it's also like ah it's just i don't even know it's a weird
1: and how strange would it be if you were one of the technical employees on a porn set right like you're doing sound and cinematography
0: it just seems like a unpleasant job it's just it's no it's it's insane um I have three. Be- I have three different trivia things. We could do honestly. I could have done fifty trivia bits for straight sure. thoughts, but I just have three. Uh, so I'll just move through these real quick. You might know these. Um, Heart Eight, the movie before this by PTA, was originally titled Cindy or, or Sydney. Excuse me. The studio made him change it. Uh, supposedly, the reason why that's why he opens Buggy Nights with uh, a electric sign that prominently says Boogie Nights. Physically incorporate into the shot, so that Ooh. the studio couldn't change the that's change funny. the title on him. Second piece of trivia: uh, when they first shot the scene of the adult film awards, the actors who were all the extras didn't know what the movie was about <laughs> and did not respond positively to anything said, and actually got uncomfortable. A lot of them left. They were like, ups- they were incredibly upset. Um, I just think that's incre- that's hysterical. That's awesome. And then they they had to bring in. Uh New extras and this time, I think it was if I recall correctly uh from the trivia it's that they didn't tell them because they wanted to get a a like reaction out of them well, they got which it. seems dumb because it's <laughs> like i don't one. know what they thought people would respond with, but the second time around, they told everyone okay here's what it is, uh, and here's how you should respond. I just like imagining the awkwardness in the room of like, oh, we get to be extras in the movie wait what what what's going on what what's happening what is this <laughs> Last piece of trivia, going back to our, our, our boy. Uh, Alfred Molina had never heard Jesse's Girl or Sister Christian, uh, which he has to sing along to. So he spent three days repeatedly playing them until he knew them by heart. What a God. What a God. Uh, what do you got? Uh, uh, quote, Diggler
1: delivers a performance worth a thousand hard-ons. Steven Spielberg never got that review.
0: That, that, I can't, I can't, I can't argue. I mean. <laughs> Neither did James Cameron. Facts. <sighs> Neither did James Cameron. I can't, you know what? I can't disagree with you. Um, this one's more of a discussion point, so I don't know how much we would go into it. It's very interesting how almost positive the ending of the movie is. Mm-hmm. It's the biggest divergence from the source text, which is Goodfellas. Because um, Goodfellas is not positive at the end. Uh, I don't know if you've seen Goodfellas, Mike, but it uh, ends in a pretty bad place. It's not, I guess, as dark as it could be, but it's pretty close. Yeah.
1: It's,
0: uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> this movie is kind of positive. In fact, I, the ending montage that shows everyone in kind of an okay state, except for that one incredibly disturbing scene of the of the Colonel being beat up in prison. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which you got to believe he's sneaking in there for that reason. That's like yeah. all these, oh, John C. Riley's is a magician. Oh, um, you know, the the Don Cheadle's character has a studio. Oh, hey, this guy's getting beat up well, in prison and is crying on the floor. Oh, hey, this other – you know, it's just yeah, out of nowhere. Yeah. But but everyone's kind of in a good place, and it's just an interesting decision. I don't, it's not good or bad. That's why I put it down here. But I don't know. I, every time I see the movie, it surprises me that it ends there.
1: Well, what I like about it is it kind of – ends at the beginning you know it's amazing how many of the characters end up right where they started um yeah you know Cheeto's back in the in a radio shop and roller girls back in high school and um well ged taking getting her degree you know i actually think the it's not all positive because julianne moore is back in front of a mirror staring emptily at yeah. herself right and and so there are these little moments where it's like it's not all good, just like it, they foreshadowed that in the beginning with the idyllic start. So, yeah, but it is it is oddly positive in the sense that for the most part, people survive, um, which is not the same for Goodfellas anyway. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's all. Uh, what, what you got? Um, let's see. There's nothing cooler than someone just saying thank you as an acceptance speech for award. I just the
0: fan. the joe pesci yeah what did just, Joe what did joe pesci say i think it was uh it was my privilege thank you and then he walks off yeah what a legend or
1: the coen brothers did it for no country too they just got up and went thank you and then when they won for best picture they said thank you again
0: <laughs> i didn't know that is that it just true? brilliant yeah yeah it's awesome yeah, what gods <laughs> um this is my last one actually uh you you and i talked about this a little bit beforehand can you believe that there was actually a golden age of porn? Yeah. No. It's so no, crazy. It's like so this crazy. movie sent me on a rabbit hole of just reading. Cause like Mike, there was a porn movie that was reviewed by Roger Ebert that was talked about by Johnny Carson. I'm just like, what? This is a real thing that actually, cause and it's, it's, it's almost like we, we maybe should have brought this up before because when I first saw this movie, I took it for granted that this was all like really fictionalized if anything, it kind of underplays how, yeah, yeah. like, prominent this was in popular culture. Like, to put this in context, imagine uh, Jimmy Fallon in the age of safe Disney tie-ins and whatever, like, talking about an a actual porn movie on on The Tonight Show. It's like, what? What? I don't know. It's just so insane to me that this is real and that these this was a real time in American pop culture. Uh, I don't have any thoughts on it. I just am like, it's just extremely hard to believe. It's bonkers, uh, yeah.
1: yeah. And anytime yeah. a boomer talks about the good old days, I'm bringing that up. I'm like, wow. <laughs> let's pump the brakes. Had this, <laughs> yeah. Let's. Pump, I mean, segregation and you guys had you know porn films up for Academy Awards. So let's like pump the brakes. Um, yeah, let's, let's take <laughs> yeah. a breath a little
0: bit. Let's calm down. Um,
1: oh boy. Yeah, let's, that's all I got. Uh,
0: you can just you can just roll through these if you have more. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. So when Jerome meets Becky, he goes through an entire spiel about how love is the meaning of everything, and then he introduces himself. How far into that conversation would you get before you're like, this person's insane?
0: Uh, two 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 or three sentences. Okay, not very out. far. Yeah, yeah I'm I'm checking out pretty quick. Yeah, hundred percent. All right, Becky's there for him, man. She's... Oh, no, she meets him there. Yeah, she's, it's like it's, yeah, it's she, love she's, at first sight. It's it's a beautiful moment. It might be the single most... She actually has the most positive arc of anyone in the movie, if you really mm-hmm. think about it. Because mm-hmm. Don Cheadle has to go through a horrifying ordeal yeah. with the robbery. But, PTSD, for uh, sure. But, yeah, no. She's fine.
1: And she gets out. That's also part of it. It's kind of like with Goodfellas. Yeah. The people who get out, they're going to make it.
0: Um, actually, sneak, sorry, real quick. Secretly, one of the other little... little um, foreshadowing moments is when at the wedding John C. Riley realizes that she's moving away yeah and says everyone something like Becky's not going to be with us anymore and yeah. it's, it's such a small moment but you're right it's like basically like signaling okay the the people who are figuring this out are getting out and everyone left is going to kind of go through hell so <laughs> yep. buckle up yeah
1: buckle up <laughs> um uh you're a music guy so thoughts on Dirk Diggler's music career I actually can't believe I didn't write this down. Uh, he, one of the. Can I sing you the song? Yeah, go 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 for it. Yeah. He will rock you. He will roll you, baby. Don't you know my heat will move your soul? Come on, come on, come on, come on. <laughs> Thoughts. Discuss. <laughs> I actually meant
0: to talk about this in Wahlberg's section. Just that it's like that is just, and it's funny. You didn't even talk about the song that I was thinking of. I was thinking of "You've Got the Touch," and. Watching him, I don't have the lyrics in front of me, but watching him sing that uh, with the and the facial expression on the studio engineer of that whole scene is just magnificent. It, yeah, it's yeah. it's a it's a crowning moment, I think. Of that I literally
1: moment. thought of you in that role. I'm like, I could see this happening Thank to John. God. Like at, at some job, <laughs> he's just trying to make ends meet, and you're just listening to this this freaking guy just ruin music, just, just ruin music forever. <laughs> <Just>. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I got two more. So yeah. first is a pretty simple question. The answer is just yes. Um, is trying to pass off a whole bag of baking soda the least likely to
0: succeed hustle ever?
1: <laughs> yes. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a bold <laughs> plan. That's what
0: I'll say. It's a bold plan. And then I'm
1: about to be a new father. So this one really hit home for me. How much would you not want Scotty to be the one filming the birth of your first child? <laughs>
0: That's a you know and it's funny too because that's a moment he even in, you know we didn't call attention to this. in the second half of the movie as things were getting dark, there are still these moments of insane levity that are very valuable to keeping you watching the movie and that's one of them. Because yes. you're just watching the baby being born, and it's like, oh, this is kind of a special moment. And then it pans over to Scotty in the room just, with the video camera. Jeez, like, dude! <laughs> like, I can. And you're just like, oh my god. I can think of no one else that I would want least in the delivery
1: room. <laughs> Poor Scotty. Weirdo Scotty.
0: <laughs> what a what an amazing moment. Uh, man. Anything else, Mike? That's all I got. Awesome. Stick around in just a minute. We're gonna be talk, uh, launch into some of our essays for this. movie everyone, welcome back. In the second half of the podcast, Mike and I have each prepared an essay, kind of trying to explore this movie a little more in-depth, uh, usually from a spiritual angle of some kind. I believe I'm going first, right, Mike?
1: That is correct.
0: Awesome. Here we go. There's a reason why we sometimes call a close community a family, uh, with regards to Dom Toretto. The most ideal version of the two, the perfect family, or the closest and most intimate group of friends actually share a lot in common. Both of them include people who care so much for each other that they're willing to sacrifice for the other's well-being. Both of them include people who share the best and the darkest moments of life with each other. Both of them are for relationships that are long-lasting and perhaps even unbreakable or unending. But most importantly, Both are places where you are supposed to want to belong. Unfortunately, many people have experienced a slow estrangement from a once close community. Even more unfortunately, many people have experienced the same thing with their family. But again, in ideal circumstances, both of these are meant to represent places where you want to be part of it. Where you want to engage with these people and become closer and closer to them. When we first meet Eddie Adams, soon to be Dirk Diggler, at the start of Boogie Nights, I said that weird, at the start of Boogie Nights, any desire he might have had to be part of his actual biological family has long since been demolished. His father is distant and cowering. His mother is an unceasing torrent of spite and anger and demeaning vitriol. Critically, neither seems to want him there. At least, neither seems to want him there the way that he is. And this is so starkly contrasted by Jack Horner and his small empire. Everyone there likes Dirk. Everyone admires him. Everyone praises him. They seek his opinion and show him and his personality and his desires respect. They help him. Dirk's reaction to both is key. To his family, his actual blood relatives, He finally just has to leave. However painful and difficult it proves, he has to extricate himself. He simply cannot stay there anymore. Jack Horner's house, on the other hand, becomes the cornerstone of Dirk's professional and personal life. He helps them. He works with them. He hangs out with them. He shares life and success and failure with them. Dirk wants to belong there. And that is what makes it more of a family than the biological family that he left. But I think there's something else that is an even more fascinating aspect of how Buggy Nights depicts this combined family and community. And that's the way that Dirk's relationship with his adoptive family breaks down and is then restored. Part of why Dirk became so attached to his new community was that he had a role he could play. He was, as he constantly reminds us, the rock star, the center of attention, the most talented, the most gifted, the most important. The drugs play a part in it, but I think the biggest factor in Dirk's slide to estrangement is his fear that his role in the community might be changing. He and Jack have a minor back and forth about who blocks the sex scenes of their films. A new, younger talent is brought in and threatens him. Dirk's special gift doesn't perform the way it's supposed to. Dirk, I think, feared what many of us fear. That we are not accepted by our close community, by our chosen family, unconditionally. That those around us associate with us only insofar as we play a role, as we fulfill their expectations, as we have something to add. And as he kept getting bombarded by threats to this potential role, he panicked, he lashed out, he loses control. And so Dirk and Jack tumble into a separation that neither of them really wanted, a separation that devolves into darkness and bitterness over time. At the end of the movie, Dirk, who has exhausted every option and used up every lifeline he has, finds his way back to this adoptive family. In tears, he confesses his wrongs, he apologizes, he's welcomed back. The key thing was not that Digler had only found a community where he wanted to belong. It was that he found a community that would accept him, no matter what. It was Dirk's inability to believe that unconditional acceptance which caused him to leave in the first place. In an interview, Paul Thomas Anderson stated that Boogie Nights is not a movie where characters have dramatic changes. Uh, he said, quote, "Everybody is the same. Maybe if there's a change, it's like one degree. Normally you see a 90 degree change in a movie. To me, they're all pretty much the exact same people as they were at the beginning of the movie. end quote. If there is a 1% change, I, I think it could be this. Diggler found the place where he wanted to belong, but then he also learned that that place could accept him unconditionally. Now, to clarify, I'm not advocating for Boogie Nights as a depiction of a perfect community or a perfect family, but I also think that this theme of a chosen family is so critical to the thematic resonance of the movie. Set against a backdrop that pretty much anyone would consider revolting. Paul Thomas Anderson demonstrates the processes that transform a small community into something closer and deeper. The ways that we not only find a place we want to belong, but are accepted unconditionally. And I think that's a key part of why this movie resonates so strongly. So, yeah, Mike, I, I guess I'm mostly I'm just curious your thoughts about it. We talked about it a little bit, but not too much. Uh, this theme of family in the movie, I just think it's so fascinating. And it's actually very easy. I don't know about you. In the past, I have so often overlooked how important the scenes with his actual biological family mm-hmm. are. Yeah. Um, and, and I guess that's kind of what I was interested in when I was writing this is that it so demonstrates a difference between them. Right. But, but between the two between the Horner and, and all of them and between his biological family. I guess, I don't know. do you just, do you have thoughts on that? Do you, do you, see that thematic resonance in the movie?
1: I have one thought, John and La Familia. This is the fast and furious podcast. Um, Welcome to
0: the fast and furious podcast, man. Let's just do it. Let's, let's just let's do go. it, man.
1: Those memes are giving me life right now. All the La Familia memes that are popping up around fast nine. Um, it's amazing.
0: It's, it's important.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, so yeah, it's, it's, It's an obvious major theme in the film in the sense that, you know, I think the reason you forget about those early scenes with his biological family is because he's trying to make it clear that this is not Dirk's family, right? It's, it's the source of his trauma. It's the source of what he's fleeing. Um, And so much of what you kind of said resonates where it's, his journey is to unlearn that the family he chose after fleeing from this destructive biological family it was in that they're not the same right that jack's not going to treat him the same as his mom who berates him and calls him an idiot and basically is constantly asking him what are you actually doing that earns your right to be here right none of this is actually yours unless you earn it it's all mine right and how much of you know it's pride plays a big part of it but how much of also, uh, of his downfall is also his fear of that being the case with what he's gained, right? That yeah, once again, the father figure is going to throw him out, call him worthless, and not take him back and take everything he owns, right? Um, yeah. So yeah, I think I think it's that's it's a poignant part of the film. Um, that's easy to forget, but I think it's critical. So, um, yeah. I don't know if that answers your question, but
0: no, absolutely, absolutely. Um, What do you think about this idea of, of, you know, and again, there's a certain degree to which this is probably obvious, but I'm I'm, I'm just curious to hear your thoughts on it. This nature to which, you know, a family unit or or this kind of way that we choose like a a group of people that we become very, very close to, that there's almost like these two sides to it that you have to accept. The first, obviously, being how much you want to be part of them. Right. Mm -hmm. But the second being how much. They want you to be part of them unconditionally. And and again, I, I think that's so important because, again, as this movie demonstrates, there's that thing of if thinking that you have sort of restrictions on how you interact with this group, right? Because he always wants to be part of them from basically the beginning. Yeah, yeah. He wants that life. But the thing that the way he enters into that group and the way he enters into this community, he... Believes he can only interact with them in one context, which is I am the best and I am yeah. the, the golden child. And of course having that conception of his role is what drowns him eventually. Cause he's once there's a threat to that, he believes there's a threat to his, all of his interactions with him. Um, I just feel like that's a familiar path. I, I don't know. Maybe I'm just speaking for me, but that is certainly, I, th- I think something that a lot of us experience in terms of, you know, how much do I really believe that these other people want me here? Yeah. And that if I wasn't contributing X or if I wasn't playing the role of Y, would they still want me here? And and that leads you into doing strange things and into, you know, because it's ridiculous in a way in the movie when he lashes out. And again, obviously he's on a lot of drugs and that's probably more of a reason why. But still, it's part of it, right? Is that is that he's he's having this crazy lash out, and they're all like, you know, calm down. Like, what are we doing here? And that only makes sense in that context of that fear, right? Of of that fear of, of, of that separation that it's like, if I can't do this role, then, therefore, I would not be able to be accepted by these people that I want to be accepted by. Uh, yeah. Yeah, no. yeah. Yeah
1: two immediate thoughts came to my mind uh, you know the first is projection and just how devastating to our most sincere and loving relationships um it is when we turn the person who loves us into a projection of our own insecurities and fear right where there are yeah. so many times where i'll say something to my wife and she's like well i didn't say that so you're in and basically it's a mirror moment where it's like your insecurities yeah is what you feel about yourself and you're just putting it onto me, right? And how much damage is done in those moments. I cannot even begin to express how many problems that has created in my life where I hate myself, so I am projecting or assuming that the person who loves me hates me too and then acting accordingly, right?
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Um, Yeah. And then, But the one that I think really came to mind is kind of like this paradoxical bit about love in general, like real real unconditional love and how you know if we assume that it's earned we're gonna go sideways in a hurry and yet if we assume that we're owed it it's gonna go sideways in a hurry Mm, right yeah it is like if I tell myself that people will only love me if I produce if I uh, give them what they need or if I'm invaluable right I can't be replaced I it's gonna get toxic real quick um, for me and for the other person that's I mean that's just codependency to the max, but at the same time, you know, how many relationships fail because we have an assumption that this person has to love me or that I'm owed that they'll always be here. Right. Um, And they'll always have affection Mm. for me. And then we don't, we don't care for the person at all tangibly. Right. Uh, We take them for granted and things fall apart. So it's strange. It's like, there is this moment. And this is getting dangerously close to where I'm going to go in my monologue but there is this moment where you have to embrace it as like a truly unearned gift that demands a response which is mm. to cherish it and and to allow it to change you right and to act accordingly yeah. um but it is strange right isn't it strange that it's like i can't earn it and if i try to earn it i'm going to get sick but if i assume that i'm owed it i'm going to and don't try to do anything in response to it i'm going to get sick right yeah. Um, it's just strange. I don't know if you have any <laughs> thoughts about that.
0: Well, it, it's, it's so cool too, because uh, cool is an interesting word to use, but I mean, it's, it's one of those interesting things. Cause in spirituality, there's all these paradoxes, right? There's yeah. all these things that it's like, you put these sentences together and it's like, what, what do you mean that I, yeah, I, I can't, I ha- I have to accept these things. And, and I think that's what it comes down to so often is the, uh, it requires a certain acceptance of what's around you, not trying to exercise control over it one way or the other, whether that's because, you know, like you said, whether the control is okay, well, you know, obviously I am earning this. I am the one who's producing these results and what's around me or the reverse of like, you know, I don't, I don't deserve this. Yeah. And therefore I have to do all this work to, and I think both of those you're stuck in this, in this pattern of, you know, Yeah, trying to exercise control where there isn't any. Yeah. And it's that it's why surrender comes up as a phrase, too. That when you're in this situation where you have found that group and you have found that tightness and that closeness, there is this sort of strange move you have to do of just leaning into it. And it sounds so easy, but I think anyone who's experienced it knows that that can be exceptionally difficult but that's again just the call of I think spirituality in this context
1: yeah yeah I mean and we hate we hate the moments where all we can say is thank you like there's just nothing else we can do and yeah and then and that's really all it is it's like when you are when someone actually loves you it's like all you can say is thank you and then act gratefully um, in response right Um, yeah actually I was just having a conversation with a friend a couple weeks ago um, where I was sharing about how many times I sabotaged relationships because I was just like, well, I hate me. So this person hates me. So I'm going to make them leave. Right. And mm-hmm. just the profound moment that I got through counseling, um, you know, and, and then also came to realize myself, which is, I think the way I worded it to them was we have to give uh, someone else the freedom to like us. Mm, and yeah and there's this moment where it's just like i am ch- ch- thinking i control this person by being like <laughs> you're not allowed to like me right because i don't like myself and there's this terrifying step that you take when you're just like no this person has chosen to do that and it's not mm. my right to say well you shouldn't right and instead to accept yeah. it and to, again say thank you and respond accordingly um that's hard that's incredibly hard right it's so hard <laughs> But, but I think that's it. I may really do. Few stories from Christian tradition are more well-known by both believers and non-believers alike than the prodigal son. The parable of Jesus that's probably more aptly called the parable of two sons and a father. The story goes like this. A son tells his father that he wants his inheritance early. The father gives in to his request, and off goes the son to a distant land where he blows all the wealth living extravagantly, ultimately falling into destitution. As he sits at rock bottom, starving and living amongst pigs, he recalls that even his father's animals and the servants live better than he does. So, prompted by his hunger and that rumbling stomach, He returns home, hoping that his father will take him back as a slave, repeating to himself a prepared statement of self-loathing along the way, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. However, the father sees him coming down the road and runs to him, cutting off his repeated statement, embracing, kissing, and clothing him, throwing a feast to celebrate his return, saying, For the son of mine was dead and is alive again, He was lost and is found a beautiful moment but as the feast rages on the prodigal's older brother returns from working in the fields and grows resentful that his father is celebrating rather than punishing his rebellious brother why does he get a feast when i've remained so loyal obedient such a hard worker the older brother refuses to enter the feast and the parable closes with the father going outside the party to meet his older son saying My son, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours, but we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. End scene. It's no wonder that this parable has stuck in people's imaginations for centuries. It's a tale of betrayal and redemption, injury and forgiveness, judgment and grace, exile and return. But beyond that, it's always been the nuances of it that have stuck with me. For example, the extent of the insult to the father is enormous in Jewish culture. Asking for one's inheritance early was to say, Father, I wish you were dead already, or hurry up and die, which in Jesus's day is the epitome of dishonor, shame, and humiliation for a father, not to mention in a village community, everyone of it would have known that this disgrace had happened. Or another example, the story lacks black and white morality. The prodigal son's motivations are gray, at best. He repents because he's hungry, not necessarily because he's sorry. In the seeming villain of the story, the older brother is quite frankly right. The treatment of the prodigal is unfair. No tongue lashings, extra chores, or paying the father back. Nothing is done to ensure that the behavior doesn't happen again. Not to mention the older brother only finds out secondhand as he's coming back in from work. He only finds out that there was a celebration at all from a servant he happens to pass by. Or in other words, the father forgot about him. But above all, it's the father's character that makes this story so strange and so memorable. When insulted, he gives the prodigal what he wants, not even trying to dissuade him of the poor decision he's about to make. When the prodigal returns, he runs to meet the son, who made him look stupid publicly, furthering his humiliation as running was considered undignified of elders in Jesus' culture. Humiliation only furthered even more when he's publicly berated by his older son, which he responds to with affirmations of love and blessing. The character simply makes no sense, and if we're honest, we would probably call him a bad father, the parable of the stupid father taking abuse and not once acting to impose himself or ensure that his belligerent sons learn the right lessons from their failures. It's inhuman. It's strange. And yet that's what gives the story power. A power that Boogie Nights understands all too well. Boogie Nights, intentionally or not, relies on this parable and its power deeply. Obviously, that's not a very Crazy thing to say when you think about the plot. Eddie comes under the care of Jack, his own gracious father, who invites him into his family to find love, success, fame, and fortune as Dirk Diggler. Until, in selfish pride and ambition, Eddie determines that Jack's holding out on him, letting paranoia of Jack's intentions and generosity fester until it escalates to Eddie essentially telling Jack that he wishes he were dead. Eddie storms off with his inheritance, living extravagantly, until he finds himself starving, addicted, living amongst pigs. I guess that's a mean thing to say about Melina, but whatever. Degrading himself fully, until he literally runs out of gas in that famous scene. All building to Eddie's return. Approaching Jack, his humiliated father, and forcing out his own rehearsed apology. Jack, could you please help? I guess I just wanted to come and say sorry, you know? And, um, I just want to know if you could help me, Jack. I need help. I'm sorry, you know, I need help, Jack. I'm so sorry. To which Jack responds, without any good reason, by moving towards Eddie. Embracing him, apologizing himself, and holding Eddie as he weeps and falls apart. It's this moment that the whole movie, the whole story, seems to hinge upon this reconciliation between father and son that leaves us with that same sense of grayness and mystery as Jesus' famous parable. Eddie's return wasn't prompted by remorse. He was simply hungry and destitute. And yet Jack embraces him without further punishment or attempts to ensure that Eddie never wounds him again. Jack apologizes, though he, in my estimation, has no reason to. And in that, Boogie Nights captures the beautiful, absurd, human choice to give grace. One that flies in the face of our monkey brains and can only seem to reside in spaces of moral grayness, nuance, and story. The choice to embrace without knowing whether someone's truly sorry. To allow the pain already experienced by natural consequences to be enough without seeking to add more, prove a point, or manipulate change. The choice to embrace and welcome home, despite the desire to seek retribution or retaliate. To own your side of the street in a conflict without insisting that the other person owns what you perceive to be theirs in the way that you perceive they should own it. The choice to respond to the limping, hungry, broken-down person in front of you with unmerited favor. Intellectually, grace feels so inhuman. And yet, watching this scene, it also feels like the most human thing there is. Like the father in Jesus' story, Jack could retaliate, berate, impose, control, or reject. Yet, in the moment, to do so would, in their own ways, erode what makes Jack who he is. The loving, open, generous, compassionate father of lost children. Despite what his instincts shout, no doubt, or how others may perceive him, this idiot father, Jack knows that to maintain his integrity, he must allow his heart to guide him into a response that in its details makes absolutely no sense, unmerited favor, grace. And in that, I'm confronted by the paradoxical power of grace, that in releasing control over the other, we find the only honest way we could ever have potentially influenced them at all. In refusing to demand anything, Grace paradoxically demands a response, a choice from the other party. It demands that they either reject it, double down, stay the same, or accept it. Recognizing that they've received forgiveness and favor in a way that they can never earn or pay back, something that, when truly felt, will compel any human to change. And Boogie Nights never tells us if Eddie accepts the gift and changes. Which is good, because honestly that's not the point. The point that the movie builds to is that Jack chooses Grace, and it's up to Eddie, and Eddie alone, to decide what he'll do with it. And as the film closed, I kept wondering, who is the older brother in Boogie Nights? The person who in hurt and judgmentalism sets outside the party stuck in their own head, baffled by grace, refusing to come in. And the only answer I could find was that it's me. As I watched Jack embrace Eddie, my intellect, that monkey brain, protested. It cried out that this was unfair, that Eddie's bottom wasn't enough, that the more punishment was deserved and more remorse was needed, that Jack had no reason to say sorry, that this stupid, bad, foolish father was setting himself up to get hurt again, blah, blah, blah. And yet, in those protests, my heart cheered. It celebrated. It whispered, yes, Mike, grace makes no sense. But you too have been given it often as a prodigal. Yet still so often you choose to be this older brother. And you don't have to be. You can come into the party. All you have to do is be willing to wrestle with the nuance, the grayness, the mystery, the complexity of grace to release that judgment and control, and let that shift you to a different character in this strange story, the father, Jack, the grace giver. That's available, so long as you're willing to hear and then say to the Eddie in front of you, my son, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours, but we have to celebrate and be glad because this brother of ours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found.
0: Yeah, Mike, I thought that was great. I, uh, You and I have obviously both sort of talked about it and, and been part of an ongoing discussion, I think, in terms of that specific parable, right? It, it's Yeah, yeah. It's so, I, I don't know, it's such a fascinating story because... It just opens itself up in so many ways. I, I think what I like about it is that the the most basic reading of it I actually don't think is bad. I, I think it's a perfectly Yeah powerful reading of just like, okay, yeah, it's this this level about what it what radical acceptance and forgiveness looks like. Uh, but there is this other aspect to it, that there's all these little things and and things about it that are are for lack of a better word, sort of I guess insidious or rebellious was, is I guess would be the best word. I, I always think about specifically, I always fixate on the way that, you know, you you brought it up, but the, the son in the prodigal son story doesn't have the contrition that we would think is, is required yeah. to come back. Right. Yeah. It, he's, he's not necessarily coming back for the right reasons. And, and what we tend to think of as justice in, in, in our sort of modern view and actually, it's not even just modern, I think, in any view, would be that he would have to have reached this point of supplication, right? Yes. That he has yes. to have, have hit this point of, well, I understand where I where I messed up. And he doesn't at all. Or at least we don't get an indication that he does. And in the context of this movie, it's fascinating, too, because I, I think you could have, I don't know, I, I think it's so purposefully unclear where exactly... Eddie Adams is by the way it's just this is a very very small tangent Uh, I debated back and forth whether to call him Diggler or Eddie Adams in my essay I decided on Diggler but I I went back and forth it's just funny you decided the opposite at any rate it's so up in the air what he's feeling at the end of this because that moment I I think the scene that you kind of referenced because you said when he runs out of gas when he's in the car driving away and that's clearly just the absolute worst moment for him right Yeah. Um, And it's just I think the complex thing is that He's so desperate, his circumstances Are so desperate And when he comes back to Jack All he says is, I just need help He doesn't say, I want back in I want to be back where I was I want to work again He just says, can you help me? It's the most base request you can possibly make Of, you know uh, I don't know And, And interpreting where that is and where he is may or may not be valuable, but it is so meaningful that Jack doesn't even care. Seemingly. Yeah. It yeah. doesn't really matter the extent to which he is or is not asking. Jack just embraces him. And, and God, that scene does just land really hard. I don't have any other way to talk about it other than saying, yeah, it, it just really you're on that journey with both of the characters i think because you also see the way that jack has himself been humbled i think to maybe a certain extent just by the circumstances of life everything happening around that because he also had all these ambitions that clearly are not going to come to fruition and all of that leads them both to a place of just just that radical acceptance i guess is for lack of a better word yeah um, it's just fascinating. I, don't, I, I, yeah, I don't know if I that adds anything, but that that's that was my response as I was as I was hearing you talk. I guess. No, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, and I think that's,
1: yeah, it, a couple of different thoughts popped into my mind. You know, I think one of them is about the parable of the prodigal itself that this movie mirrors really well, which is you know it's so easy to turn it into an allegory where the father is God and. And where the wretch, and then you kind of usually just ignore the older brother in most evangelical readings of it. They just don't touch on it um, or mm-hmm. make it an anti Semitic thing, which is a whole nother bag, can of worms that we're just not going to dive into. But I think it's really interesting how much more nuanced it is. Um, because when you look at it, not to get too Bible nerdy, but you look at it in the context, there's two parables before it, and they're both about counting. Uh, there's the shepherd who has 100 sheep, and one sheep goes away, and he counts, and there's only 99, so he goes and finds the one. And then there's a parable about a woman who has 10 coins, she loses one, she counts, there's only nine, she goes and looks, finds the other one. And then there's a party after both. And isn't it interesting that then there's this parable of this story of a father who forgets to count. He has two sons, he throws a party, and he forgets about the older brother, Right. Mm -hmm. And it becomes this conversation of it's so easy to make the father into the idyllic God figure. And yet the parable also hits me when it asks me the question of who in your excitement and joy are you forgetting to include? Right. Who in your family are you leaving out? It makes me think of Scotty. Right. Who isn't here? And it's because in your celebration, you forgot that maybe they'd want to come or maybe they'd be hurt if they were left out. And that's again—it's kind of one of those things where I'm not sure even where to throw that in, into the larger context of the conversation. But I think Boogie Nice just gets the grayness of that parable and how it it tells its own parable about Eddie yeah. and Jack, in which, yeah, justice is is not what we think it should be, and yet Jack also, you know, he also. <laughs> feels the need to apologize himself he's not perfect and he's also humbled like you said and there's a moment of humbling and recognition for him and and then there's (laughs) yeah i don't really know and then and then you just kind of sit there at that scene and it's kind of like you said intellectual or i said intellectually you're you have all sorts of thoughts about it but your heart just cries out with joy that the embrace happens and there's nothing more human than that and which i can't explain to you why i'm so happy in this moment i don't know if eddie changed I don't know if Jack should be apologizing. I don't think any of it matters, or at least my heart doesn't, because it's just excited to see that the father and son are back together again,
0: you know? Yeah. And, and I, I think too, then leaping off of that, and you're talking about, you know, the, the things that are being missed, right. The, the older brother and that yeah. and, and all that, which, which you talked about in the essay too, but you know, j- just, just, it, it's notable that there's so many problems in this household, right? Yeah. Not least of which with his wife and and her immense pain. And, and you brought up anecdotally earlier when I was talking about the ending montage and how things are kind of positive, but she's still stuck in the mirror. And she's yeah. still... And it's, it's almost like a, it, it's kind of revealing that this undercurrent still exists. Yeah. And I, I almost think that that that's part of this too, right? The, the people that he's forgetting or the things that he's not noticing going wrong around him talking about Jack. Yeah. The things that he's, he's, I, I don't know. It's, it's just such, I agree. That's such a key part of the story. That's like that this dramatic separation and reunion, which is so meaningful to both of the characters arguably is also what causes them to overlook the pain in other people around them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That, that it, it creates the situation where, you know, there's so much ecstasy in that and there's so much joy in that, again, that reunion and, and, and there's something so powerful about that, but it lets, but it lets him skip over all of these horrible things happening around him and these undercurrents that are, that are pervasive. Um, yeah, I don't know. And, and you know, it's funny. We also said very anecdotally or I said it's it's interesting how they never reference William H. Macy's character again. Yeah. But in a way that that's kind of what we're saying too, right? It's like there's this there's this sort of sweeping under of all of these things that are going wrong. And there's this maybe this degree to which they just don't want to confront those things and and they don't want to they, they don't want that darkness to seep in. And you know, there's probably a degree to which we're, we're, you know, overthinking this to, 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 yeah, a extent. Yeah, sure, sure. But I, I don't know. I, I think that's a valid part of, of how you can perceive this story. Right. Especially like you said, in context of the prodigal, where there is this almost B story that we don't like to talk about because it, it changed. It, it introduces a lot of grayness because it's easier to see the father or Jack as just being this positive figure. Um, and so there's almost something uncomfortable about like, well, wait, how are they ignoring the undercurrent dark things happening around them? Yeah, um, yeah, I don't know it 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 it's great because it's incriminating in both directions, right? You can see yourself where you're the prodigal, but you can see yourself where you're the the father as well or the brother, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's the power of it. And it almost goes back even to to your monologue right that last line we could have brought up with yours where what's the response to the belligerent older brother that you know i find myself in a lot um which is just my son you are always with me and everything i have is yours like that's the statement that yeah um is made in love and in terms of the family that of flawed people who are still flawed and are still no doubt going to cause pain by the refusal to address what's wrong, what's broken. Um, And yet there's something profoundly hope-filled and beautiful in the fact that despite their flaws, they still are able to say to the prodigal, right, and to the older brother, you know? You're always with me. Everything I have is yours, right? It's unearned. It's unmerited. It's given. And yeah, I don't know. I really don't. But it's beautiful. Beautiful movie. Jesus. Director of Boogie Nights. <laughs>
0: um. Look at that. We did. <laughs> hey, guys, thank you so much for listening to this episode. Uh, we have both waxed very long. My my timer says well over two hours. I'm not sure what the final edit will be. Uh, I'm pretty sure Mike could have done another four on Paul Thomas Anderson. Is that accurate, Mike? Do you want me to go?
1: Yeah, to you know it? what?
0: Maybe I'll just... I can just shut off my mic and just go go do let's something. Let's just run it back. Just let's just thing. run it back. We'll yeah, do the whole just thing. Let's run it back. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but thank you all for listening we have actually a final question Mike and I each have prepared for the other but before that uh, we wanted to tell you on the next episode we are going to be doing The Departed Um, Go Socks finally we're finally (laughs) you were just you were so ready for that we're finally doing Scorsese Tom Brady he's the goat We're, we're jumping in on probably our shared all time favorite director I think maybe at least yeah, I would think we both think of him extremely highly, but we're jumping in on not the top. I don't think um, it'll be an interesting conversation. The Departed is an amazing movie that is also we're, we're going to have a lot to say <laughs> about it. Let's just say that.
1: What is Jack uh, which, is Nicholson a doing? Is that fair assessment, Mike?
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: I spend most of my time just contemplating what Jack Nicholson's doing in that movie. So it's incredible. Yes, we're going to have a fair some impressions. Thing to say.
0: It's going to be it's going to be magical. <laughs> Uh, but, yeah, so tune in for that. In the meantime, we each have a final question. Uh, Mike, I'll go first if that's okay. Yeah, go. Shoot. So, okay, so so Dirk Diggler gets into a pretty rough state by the mm. end of the movie. We were just talking yeah. about this. By the yeah, time yeah. that he has to go back to, uh, you know, goes back to Jack. How desperate would your circumstances have to be to buy in on Thomas Jane's plan to sell baking powder as cocaine to a literally insane drug dealer? Like I, I just want to gauge it because I'm watching the movie and I'm like, yeah, you know what, Eddie James, you're in a bad place. I don't think it was that bad. I think you maybe should have had more questions with this plan yeah. before jumping on. I just want to know, yeah, like, like, where would you be to be like, yeah, let's go for it
1: on cocaine? I guess, like, <laughs>
0: just a few. <laughs> that's, I guess that's the only answer. Yeah, apparently you have, you have a, few, be... <laughs> a
1: few years into a deep cocaine addiction. Uh, I, I don't. It's and you're so... signing off it's so unbelievably stupid that i can't answer your question like there's i even as someone who has struggled with addiction cannot imagine being a at a moment so low that i have lost my intellect so deeply that i would sit in that room and be like this yeah let's do it let's go this is gonna work
0: like it's this is obviously gonna work it's the worst plan ever in a, very, in a very dark moment, doesn't he also get mad at Scotty for being like, hey, yeah.
1: Scotty like, doesn't sound like a Are you sure plan. this is a good idea? And he's like, shut up, Scotty. And I'm like, that's like the only part I relate to. I would do that.
0: Yeah. yeah. I, you would like anyone else in your entire life would be like, hey, Mike, I'm not so sure about this one, bud. Like, shut up. Just, shut up. Yeah. No, it's bonkers. Beautiful. I don't know, dude. I keep saying the word bonkers, but because it is. Exactly. I mean, there's no other word for it. You're right. Yeah. You're right.
1: Uh, uh, what do you got? So, you have to have a technical job on a porn set. Which one are you picking?
0: God. Oh my <laughs> god, Mike. Um, um, you know, I feel like the sound guy. A is already kind of technical skills that I have, and B is like <laughs> kind of removed. Like as removed, you know, because because I get to sort of be just off, like, you know, just off to the side holding up a mic. I guess I could do that. I don't know. Are you I like, hate this question. Are you like closing
1: your <laughs> eyes, like clenched tight, and just holding the microphone? Yeah,
0: that's what like. I'm. Well, it's like well, and, and actually, this is a real thing though, is that when you're doing that, you actually do have to stare at a, a level meter. Um, yeah, because you're you're monitoring that. So in a sense, it's kind of a win-win. I get to just sort of like just staring at a meter just (laughs) Just
1: staring intently and it's like john i need you to look at this and you're like no i'm (laughs) I'm looking at the meter
0: (laughs) you guys got they're like hey what do you think of i'm like you i I trust you guys you got it i'm I'm just doing my own thing (laughs) no doing my own thing (laughs) no no disrespect you know what frankly no disrespect to people in the industry i I don't know like we don't don't, we haven't litigated like the the moral efficacy of pornography or not but I guess hey, if that's your thing, whatever. But yeah, no, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm not. I'd, I'd stare at the meter. I'd, I'd, I'd be distinctly uncomfortable.
1: Yeah. Uh, let's not. We're not judging them. We're judging ourselves. Like we. Yes. I do. I do not have the mental, emotional, spiritual fortitude to, to survive such <laughs> a a job very long. <laughs> so uh, yeah.
0: Nope. Uh, which of course you you have you you force me to ask. What would you do? If you had to have a technical role and, you know, to be, to be frank, Mike, you don't have any technical experience the way I do. So oh, yeah, yeah, I don't yeah, think yeah. you have an easy answer.
1: So honestly, I wouldn't want to do audio because like just listening to the noises on loop <laughs> beats sounds awful. Like even without the visual, it's just like, that's I don't know. You do that.
0: have to have, yeah, you have the headphones on and you have to be, yeah, that's a fair point. It's a fair point.
1: Um, Honestly, I, it's like, even though I hate it, Like I would hate doing it. I would absolutely insist on being the director because I'm a control freak. So I would just be like, you know what? What I was wondering
0: if you were gonna say,
1: if I have to do this, I'm in charge and we're doing it my way. (laughs) What a
0: well, you know what, Mike? If you ever need to, there's a there's a career path for you. I got if the the whole (laughs) pastor thing doesn't work out. This is what a rosy future we painted, huh? I am
1: really no. looking, really looking forward to bringing back the insistence that this is art.
0: I'm just gonna be like, guys, <laughs> this is high cinema. Guys, we have an opportunity here to do something. <laughs> Roger Ebert's gonna review. Well, he's dead. Uh, some oh, amazing oh, reviewer is gonna is gonna weigh in dark. on this. We're gonna get nominated for Academy Award. <laughs> he died a long time ago. I, that's fine. All respect to Roger Ebert. We love that guy. Uh, anyways, cool. <laughs> glad we landed there I feel a, okay podcast, about that. a
1: podcast a uh-huh. podcast worth a thousand hard-ons john we did it
0: <laughs> okay that, that's it for me i can't even if we had more to say i'd be out uh thank you all <laughs> so much for listening again i'm jonathan divine joined by mike Overstreet. we will uh see you guys next episode goodbye